Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us here on Bond by Numbers, and welcome to our latest episode. We're going to be talking about No Time to Die, our full review on the latest James Bond film. My name is Scott Powell, and as always, I am joined by my Bond spy, my spies across the sea, my agents across the ocean, my hands across America, uh, across, uh, across... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's one too many, wasn't it? It was just, it was just one Atlantic. We're the mid-Atlantic cable. Mid-Atlantic, there everything. you go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Josh and Jeff. Boys, nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Good to be back. Hey, no is. time to die review. So, long time coming. Probably as long as the uh, it was for, to release the, mo- the movie. Yeah, it does feel that way. And if you're wondering, guys, why it's taken us so long to get here to the, our review of the film, when it was released in Canada and the UK last autumn... Um, we only had a chance to see it in the cinema, really, and we're at the tail end of our third season back then. We wanted to kind of let our impressions breathe a little bit and our opinions form instead of just sort of, you know, reviewing it with fan service. We wanted to give it some time. And now that we've seen it again and we've studied the film, we're ready to come together and give it the uh, the full Bond by Numbers treatment. Hopefully you've enjoyed all of our other film podcast episodes and all the different features. And we're going to take no time to die down that same path. I think, guys, we should maybe uh, just um, start off here today with a few apologies. You know, we haven't had an episode in a while since our What If, which was great fun. But uh, mm. life's got in the way. We've been busy men, haven't we, at home? Yes. Working yeah. away. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a little bit busy, yes. The daily grind. Mm-hmm. The daily grind. Yeah. Family stuff. Totally. Absolutely. But uh, we're delighted to be back. And we've got nice plans for the summer. A couple of good episodes lined up for everybody then as well. So Sweet. it should be, should be fun. Um, moving mm-hmm. forward but this is this is also going to be fun because we have been waiting for this episode for a while um since we last spoke about the film lots has happened uh with respect to its reception and you know stories come out about craig's leaving and you know and uh yeah i'm excited to to do this because it'll give our impressions episode a little bit more scale and <laughs> yeah exactly. a bit more dimension yeah, the impressions episode, take it as you will, but you can add this to the list of all the other Bond movies that we've reviewed in Bond by Numbers, which was our original goal, you know, before we ran out of Bond movies to <laughs> review and pretty much went to Bond-related things and <laughs> overall fandom, which has been fun. It's really great to explore, you know, outside of the regular film franchise and explore, you know, uh, the works of Fleming or other Bond writers, such as John Gardner, which we've offered up here already with our... License Renewed? License Renewed review a couple mm-hmm. of months ago. Yeah. We're was it a couple of months? A couple of months, yeah, around a few there. months ago, and we're going to do for special services about, now soon. Yeah, that will be that will be the next one on the list, yeah. And then we'll probably take a look at the other Bond authors, too, like Horowitz, uh, who we'll talk about today as well in regard to No Time to Die. Yeah, we will. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it should be a really fun episode today, talking about No Time to Die and, you know, give, giving you our final impressions of the film. And as Scott said, we do have some interesting episodes lined up in the next couple of months. Uh, one thing we're going to touch on finally is uh, we're going to get Jeff's um, contribution to the Double O Origins. Yeah, that's right. So I'm looking forward to that um, Jeff uh, has been reading up on that just recently, haven't you? That's right, yeah. So we kind of uh, did a bit of a about-face into what I was going to choose, because it has been kind of uh, uh, changing as we go, just sort of the ideas of what I could choose for an Origins. And uh, we all kind of agreed, and uh, and I think it was a good idea, um, was that uh, we 
we used the the new the newly released uh, Netflix film uh, based on uh, or called Operation Mismate, which is based on the book by Ben uh, McIntyre. Um, and uh, obviously that has uh, relation a non-fiction to book. A, it's a, it's real sorry, yes, uh, exactly. Yeah. It, it is. It is not fiction. And it in uh, Fleming did indeed have a part to play in Operation Mismate, which was a, a huge, the largest uh, deception operation of World War II uh, for the Allies, and it had to do with mm-hmm. the Allied invasion of Sicily and just. All the working pieces and all the espionage and uh, deception um, that was used at all all it, levels of intelligence uh, during the time, and Fleming was uh, was uh, a key part in that as well. So since that since Fleming had a part to do with that, we thought that would be a, a good nice little uh, homage to sort of the world of Bond and uh, a good origins of where he came up because he was even in the the book and and, and in the film itself he's like I, I want to be a spy writer <laughs> spy novel writer well you know you got it yeah I'm wondering how much because we know that he picked up the you know his keyboard yeah his his, his, his uh well he, he picked up his typewriter yeah hey it's, it has a board it has keys on it that's right. works absolutely um, yeah. Yeah. He picked up his typewriter uh, to start writing Casino Royale. I think it was like in 53, I believe, Scott, mm-hmm. around that time. Uh, no, a little earlier than that, I think. Uh, it was well, 51 yeah, or 52 no, because he published it. in 53. Yep. You nailed yeah. it. He published in 53. So, yeah. 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 And he, there were some people who were saying about Fleming's particip- uh, in the film. There were some people already. I remember watching the trailer for Operation Mince Me mm. and the YouTube comments as exciting as they always are. Mm. Uh, one person, <laughs> there's always that one person who says, well, actually, Ian Fleming didn't start writing about a, about a novel until 1951. But how do you know that Ian Fleming was not sitting like yeah. in at Bletchley Park <laughs> yeah. or at, under Dover Castle? And in he between, was typing, you know, yeah, exactly in between, yeah, you know, yeah. like just. Coming up with ideas, exactly. you know, because we know that he was inspired by these soldiers who did these operations mm-hmm. in the first place. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's talked about that. Yeah. yeah. So it would be I like don't see any reason why it's such a big deal exactly. to have that included in there. Because we could kind of uh, think that it may have been like his equivalent to like Spy versus Spy, like sort of just doing these little cartoons in between the margins of like his documents, which I I can't see him actually doing that. And you know. S- you know, highly classified yeah. documents that he's just writing like little uh, brainstorming ideas, like "hmm, saw <laughs> yeah. on my watch" or you margins know, like, in uh, the margins. Yeah, yeah, in the margins. <laughs> the doodles. Well, I'm definitely lo- yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to checking out Operation Mincemeat. I'm going to watch it before we do the episode That's as good. well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott's going to watch it too, I believe. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'll get yeah, around to it. Pretty good cast. You got it, Colin- it, is, it is a good cast. Colin Firth, uh, who else? Oh, um, uh, his last name is McFadden. Ma- uh, Matthew, Matthew McFadden, McFadden that's, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, to me, uh, Mr. McFadden was my generation's, I don't, I wasn't really into literature until like the early 2000s, so my first impression of like Mr. Darcy was Matthew oh, McFadden's in, he's a great in Joel Wright's two, 2005 yeah. film. But I, I know everyone loves Firth. I just realized there's both Mr. Darcy's in that movie. There you Interesting. Go. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. Matthew McFadden was great. He was, uh, I mean, in the nor- in North America, we know it as MI5, but I think in, in Great Britain, it's, the show was known as Spooks, and it was on for many, many, many years. And he, sure was, he yeah. was one of the ma- main characters for quite some time. And, right, uh, right. He's I, a great actor. I recall that. Yep. I recall that. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so that should be really exciting. Um, another at Double O Origins. Mm-hmm. And then Scott has one for the Double O Origins 
lined up down the pipe as well. I do, yeah. Yeah, more and on we're that also later. going to be doing our usual three non-bonds this year. Mm-hmm. So f- some fun non-bond spy-ish thriller titles um, of the genre that um, you know Bond is part of. So it will be f- fun to explore those. And we're going to be doing a 1962 retrospective, the 60th anniversary of Dr. No. We're going back to that classic. Yep. And we're also going to be having, of course, guys, our uh, other What If episodes, which we'll, uh, we'll, we won't tease too much just now. But one of them involves a board game development. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah, that should be really fun. Yep. Yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out too, you d- you just mentioned, you know, the Doctor No uh, anniversary, and going back to No Time to Die, there's like, some great nods to Doctor No in this movie and there to are, Fleming yeah. in the Jamaica in general. Ooh. And I just I, one thing I didn't notice this first time I watched it, and I did notice this time when the opening titles begin in No Time to Die, you see those Doctor No polka dots on the screen. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, oh, like, yeah. when, when the titles are, yeah, are, right. are, are coming up. <laughs> so that's a pretty cool line. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, we can talk more about that when we get into the movie, guys. But right now, I think Jeff's already started us there with the mincemeat tease. Why don't we move mm-hmm. into the world of Bond and say a few things about what's been going on in our world of James Bond. Let's get the good news here. Uh, he's a great participant in the James Bond film franchise, and every Bond fan knows his name. He directed uh, he directed every one of the 1980s Bond films, and he's been with the Bond. Uh, he's been he's been with uh, Eon Productions with Bond since nearly the very beginning, working under Peter Hunt, um, and then becoming an editor himself, and then eventually becoming a director. Let's give a happy 90th birthday to Mr. John Glenn. Yeah, well done, son. Good for you, Happy John birthday. Glenn. Yep, love a bit of John Glenn. And Josh, you mentioned the within the franchise, but also John Glenn is uh, a you know he's a very very popular uh, interview as well. And he uh, I think he likes supporting the Bond community online too. Lots of good uh, lots of good interviews out there. Other people's shows. Have yeah, been, it seems uh, like yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, it seems like he generally enjoyed his experience of being part of that world, right? Because we know that he probably grew up under that studio system because he worked his way up in the crew, right? Mm-hmm. So that creates a lot of loyalty, I think, to the to the uh, Pinewood Studios, to Eon Productions, to the Broccoli family. Sure, so yeah. you can tell that he was glad to be a part of it, you know, and they used him for, they trusted him for like a whole decade to direct the Bond film. So that's a, good on him. Yeah, yeah. That's a pretty and big feather that, in the cap. <laughs> yeah, and and even though we know, for example, I heard there was like creative difficulties between him and Timothy Dalton when they were doing License to Kill, and and that kind of prevented the possibility of Dalton ret- that sort of like an ana- ana- animosity, but some sort of ambivalence uh, mm-hmm. created an, uh, a situation where Bond that uh, Timothy Dalton did not return to, as Bond um, over the next couple of years. Instead, we got Brosnan finally, but still, uh, we know that despite you know that negative impact that did occur whichever it was i think it was more on dalton's side than it was on glenn's side to be honest but that's something that we can always look up later on but everything else though the just what he's brought to the bond franchise and to me in particular because like i mean the the dalton films and even like the rod the late roger moore's that john glenn directed Mm -hmm. were part of my childhood and they were part of my impact as you know taking james bond in as one of my favorite you know, film characters. So, 
For sure. Yeah. yeah. Much appreciated for all this hard work. So that's the nice out of the way. Um, shall we talk a little bit, guys? Not a lot, just a little bit about the hot water that Fukunaga got himself in. I would say recently, but it, it appears as things are evolving and things are becoming revealed, it, it appears that this is a systemic sort of thing, huh? A pattern of poor behavior. Yeah. Hmm. Unfortunately, uh, uh, Kerry Joji Fukunaga, the director of our film in question today, um, he's been thrown with all three allegations, I think, of sexual harassment by young women. Yeah. So, so uh, unfortunately, um, the franchise has to suffer because of that. Um, I can't think of any. I mean, I don't know. I mean, Hollywood is Hollywood. So I don't really hear a lot of in the Bond franchise. Anyways, I don't really hear a lot of like issues occurring like that on the Bond sets. I don't know. Maybe because it was just the nature of the production and mm-hmm. then, yeah. I mean, we don't know when it went on behind the scenes, obviously. There's right? enough of it in the films. So. <laughs> there, there's enough of it in the films, yeah. So it, it's hard to say. But back in, the, you know, back in the day, we don't know if all these things would be brought to light. And already the Bond films are problematic. So, I mean, that would be brought to light in this day and age. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we never know. But publicly, anyways, this is the first big, uh, uh, besides Sean Connery's um, matrimonial behavior. Um, That's a euphemism and a half right there, buddy. um that we you know that we've that we've heard about this is kind of definitely a blow to the fandom and um unfortunately and 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 i mean that's insignificant you know to what these these young women had to go through in regards to um you know the allegations that they're putting against fukunaga so yeah that's very unfortunate but you know that's something that we have to talk about regardless because it is part of the bond franchise and it's important to know that this behavior is not good and we need to stamp it out and uh people need to you know an answer for it mm-hmm. and uh, you know that's that's the whole point of it is that like you know it's if you're outed or if you're quote-unquote canceled you know it's it's because of the you know actions have consequences right so mm-hmm. Yeah, and power is corruptible. That's for damn sure. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. It it definitely mm-hmm. is. On a lighter note, if we want to go back to that, as in Felix uh, lighter. Okay. <laughs> no, unfortunately no. not. But that's um, a bit heavy, actually, in relation to this film. <laughs> that's a that's a bit heavy. Yeah, definitely. I was going to say it's also um, Anna de Armas's birthday. So happy thirty fourth birthday to uh, Anna de Armas, our lovely Paloma. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, not today, of course, but most recently, since our re- recently, since our yes previous since episode. her first, yeah, yeah our previous yeah episode. she was yeah. What is it? I April April thirtieth or something? April thirtieth. April thirtieth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See how I knew that. For some uh, reason, I was going to say April thirty fourth, but that didn't make any sense. So yeah, April thirtieth. <laughs> April thirty fourth. So technically, every year. that would be what, like May fourth. Yeah. <laughs> May third. That's like a leap a leap year on like Jupiter or something yeah. because Ganymede flew by once time or something. Yeah, like they just like I man, that just screwed up. That literally made all the microwaves just flash twelve on that planet for like a month. Yeah, uh, dear. it's a zigi. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up, guys, and see what you thought of this, is that Anthony Horowitz... Now, this isn't really, like, big, hot press, okay? It's just it's just stuff, because he's the um, the most recent and very successful uh, author to pen Bond stories. Um, he's got a, an interesting um, comment made there recently about how he thinks it was wrong to kill the James Bond character in No Time to Die. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, he didn't really come out and say that in a really like offensive way towards the estate or anything like that. But he was coming at it from a writer's perspective and saying, you know, James Bond is for everybody. And although he says 
he did come close to considering killing the character and to approaching the estate to see what they would have thought of it. He ultimately decided, no, as a writer, I can't do that because um, Bond is one of these perennial features of of arts and culture. He, he deserves to, you know, to be almost, almost um, in the public forum. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, the, yeah. the, the public domain rather. And kind of untouchable in that way. Like he was going about it, arguing his case from a literary perspective, I think, and how Fleming created him, decided to keep him alive. I'm, I'm not the guy. Off, like, I'm not the guy to kill him. him. And you're yeah, you're thinking to. like the only person that should have the right to kill Bond is Fleming. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, that, that's what Horowitz is yeah. saying. Horowitz yeah. is like, I don't want to have this on my resume that I'm the one that killed Bond. <laughs> that's, <right. laughs> that's what and he's so, saying. Um, it was just tied into comments about the film and kind of how he was feeling about the end of the film, and he didn't Dear he didn't Bond think Bond. Craig's Bond needed to die that way, but or needed or should have died. But um, I, I, it's a weird one, isn't it? Because if you listen to the literary historians and the theorists like Roland Barthes, you know, famous for saying the, the author is dead. Uh, yes, I mean who cares, right? Authorial intention doesn't matter. It's uh, it's 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 in the past, right? But. But what do you but guys think? Interesting. What do you think? Just, just out of curiosity, I'd like to know, what, what do you guys think as readers, as Bond fans? I mean, should a writer, could a writer create a world where, I mean, Bond is is dead? I mean, we, we do know that one of the writers recently, I forget her name now, but I'm really looking forward oh, to it. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, she's writing at a time when Bond was right. missing, and that's the setup. Missing. But what do you think about the death of Bond in literature? And we'll in get literature to film. Or in film? <laughs> we'll, we'll get to the film. Uh, what do you think well, about the okay. death of Bond in lit? I, like again, I think it's kind of tough. Like especially from what Horowitz is saying, is because I think authors would it's it would almost sort of like be a pressure on them being like, well, I'm going to be the one like who's going to uh, you know take the short straw and be like, well, I'm going to be the one that's going to kill Bond. It's like that. That's a lot. That's a lot in your plate because you got to do it well and you got to do it right. And uh, there's stigma to that. So, I mean, I can kind of see like where people are like, I don't want to kill Bond. And he's just going to continue to sort of just be alive. Or is it going to be like a comic book death where like he dies, but he doesn't die? <laughs> like, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like next mm-hmm. issue. Oh, look, you know, he was, it's okay because uh, he was hiding behind a, uh, you know, a, a garbage can and like the lid or, stopped the bullet. I don't know. You know, <laughs> but yeah. um, or hopped in the fridge. Exactly. Or yes. Like Indiana. <laughs> oh God. Don't, don't, don't get started on that. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, but I don't know. I mean, like I'm, I'm okay. Like, cause I think we talked about this before. It's like it's the idea of Bond. Uh, so you know, you could technically say like it's not going to be James Bond, but there still could be a 007, right? But I don't know. Like, I, I kind of like the idea of Bond just sort of keep going. But I don't have a problem with Bond dying as long as it makes sense, right? It's like it's like, it's like I always say, like with you know, like a having uh, like a math exam. It's like you're going to get half points even if you don't get the right full answer. That's how I mm-hmm. quote unquote pass math exams because mm-hmm. I never got <laughs> the right answer, but I did follow the appropriate steps. So, mm-hmm. so I'm thinking it's the same thing for maybe Bond. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can see that. And in a swing, in a swing or an arc of a series like Craig's, and we'll get into this, of course, shortly, um, it, it makes a bit more sense not killing off James Bond, but killing off his Bond, his yeah. era coming yeah. to an end that way. And, and Bond like a phoenix rising again in a new form, right? A new fashion. Yeah. yeah. But it's there's an interesting a, a question, popular... and it's what's there. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, there's a popular fan theory and people use this, I think, to kind of create their headcanon of how the Bond franchise works from Dr. No all the way up until, 
you know, No Time to Die and onwards, is that the, the name James, like James Bond, isn't an actual person. It's the alias that's given to someone coded as 007. So therefore, every Bond that we've seen is like a different person, I suppose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I would argue that then, if you're saying that's the case, then the Bond that we know, if you think, if you think in terms of narrative continuity, yes. we know going from Connery to Lazenby to all the way up, even up until Brosnan, the Teresa storyline is in there, right? Yeah, like and then the you've OHMS got the story exactly. thing going on as well. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that goes yeah. all yeah, the way yeah. up until. So you could argue that was the end of the first James Bond was Die Another Day, mm-hmm. and then the new James Bond, the new person to take on that name, this orphan, right? He becomes James Bond. He becomes the next James Bond, but. Again, that's really reaching it in terms of fan yeah. theories, and I think they're just—I think they're just trying to describe in universe this, the story reasons why this has happened. You know, yes. as yeah. opposed to you know yeah. the reality yeah. is, oh, uh, it's a whole—it's a re- since Casino Royale in two thousand six, it's been a reboot of the franchise. Yeah, yeah. So and then so the Craig run is done. Uh, one of the things I kind of found about, and I'll talk about this into the in, when I talk about you know like the atmosphere and the production of No Time to Die, and, and it goes into the writing too. I think is that there's a lot of moments where I think you could take the entire Craig series and split them into like one hour episodes, and you could almost it's almost like uh, Gaddis and uh, Moffat's uh, sh- BBC series Sherlock, where they took the Arthur Conan Doyle stories, modernized it. And then, ha- and basically brought back all these old narrative threads and mixed them all together into one and then told a complete story, right? Even though the Sherlock series, in my opinion, didn't end very well. But it was starting to go in, the, in that same direction where the, the Craig era is basically the Fleming sweep, you know, uh, where you throw in Casino Royale and then you, t- you adapt perhaps, you know, Thunderball, OHMSS, and You Only Live Twice, hmm. and then putting that all together into one cinematic sweep which is from Casino Royale all the way to No Time to Die and then that and then tie the bow or tie things up right at the very end mm-hmm. um, I don't I don't know that's a, that's kind of one one way that I I, I kind of look at it I don't know if you guys feel the same well it sort of seems like and I think I don't know it makes makes sense and like again it you can definitely see how they really did I guess you could say like tie a, tie a ribbon or tie the Around that folder. I was folder. trying to say something anyway. <laughs> well, I'm not trying to say that Bond is an oak tree. I'm trying to, I'm not, we're not tying a yellow a yellow ribbon around it. Uh, I guess I don't know what color a ribbon they tie around top secret. Maybe folders. a gorgeon knot. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Or I guess you just need a Macedonian conqueror to cut it instead. But there you go. that's you know no more of those say, around. Unfortunately, uh, whatever uh, the best uh, naval uh, knot. Is because you know he's a commander, so you might as well we can tie some kind oh, of the knot joke. fancy yeah, knot. Works. Yeah, yeah. There you go. I don't know. <laughs> but anyways. It's all for knots. Oh, I was watching these tumbleweeds just pass by. Mm-hmm. I hear welcome. crickets. I don't know about you, but I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see them both. Tumbleweeds and crickets, and and maybe a, like a quiet cough in the background. You know, someone trying a, to a quiet it. cough. Yes, someone yeah. politely reaching to turn off the episode. Yeah, that's what they'll be doing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> so, yeah. So that, that's pretty much for the world of Bond. Uh, we got yeah. the Fukunaga thing. That's an ongoing thing, and we'll see where that goes. You know, as revelations, mm-hmm. it's a develop- allegations it's, it's are ongoing. are it's made. A, investigations yeah. are done. 
you know, yeah. that sort of thing. That's so What's really a bummer, but... too, is that, like, mm. yeah, <sighs> what's really a bummer is that Fukunaga has a great crew that yeah. he works with, too, like his cinematographer he's, uh, he usually has. Yeah. I mean, I, the work that he did in True Detective Season 1 in particular was just outstanding. Oh, man. Um, he, yeah. does, he did some great, you know, directing in No Time to Die as well. And now mm-hmm. I heard that... So it's unfortunate. <sighs> the third Spielberg-Hanks... Um, World uh, War II miniseries. You know, we have Band right. of Brothers and the Pacific. There's one now called Battle in the Air that's coming out. Mm. It's all about, like, the American U.S. Air Force in World War II. And Fukunaga apparently is directing episodes of that because I saw one of the actors, uh, Barry Kyogen. He's an Irish actor. He tweeted a picture or, or Instagrammed a picture of him in a cockpit and praising Fukunaga. Mm. We also know Fukunaga is, was in Ukraine recently, or he's still there. I don't know. And uh, make it maybe look like he's, you know, doing the humanitarian thing to kind of offset the allegations. Who knows? Well, I mean, that's my cynical view. I, I don't know that that's... Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure the guy does have some philanthropy within him. But sure. um, it's just it's just very disappointing that these stories are, are coming out. Um, not because mm-hmm. we're in any denial about, you know, no. celebrity figures and how they abuse power, men yeah. particularly. But just because you do want the things that you love to be... To- untarnished. To not be tarnished. Exactly, exactly. But it's, it's, it's a naive wish, and we're disappointed yeah. as fans, and as things yeah, evolve, then we just have to prepare for, uh, you know, change. But change is good within the Bond world. Change is always good. So well, I think what you're suggesting, Josh, is uh, Fukunaga's um, misdemeanors uh, are, are are not necessarily things for which his art or his direction should be slammed necessarily, but you've got to look at the person as a whole, and... Uh, Disappointing stuff, really disappointing. And yeah, heart goes out to those victims and any others who who, who come out yeah. in the next little while too. It's pretty shocking stuff. It is. It's yeah. unfortunate. Well, I appreciate that. Sir, that yeah, I appreciate that in- input, Scott. I really do. Because we, we you know we started talking about this at the beginning of the World of Bond segment we're doing here now, and I just wanted to also hear your point of view on it. So that's kind of why I brought yeah. it back a little bit. Yeah. So that's good. Well, bringing guys, it look, back, bringing it back, bringing yeah. it back. Why don't we just uh, move on over into our Cubby's Corner now? We we, we got to pull yeah. the dust off Cubby's those Corner. For a while. A little bit of Lysol disinfectant on the on the corner. <laughs> yeah, definitely today. some wipes for sure. Some yeah, wipes 100%. On, the, on the corner cabinet. Yeah. yeah, because it's been a while, Josh. Absolutely. So Can't the hit Je- to be taken. All good. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff and I are looking forward to hearing the first Cubby's Corner in a wee while. Uh, if yeah. you're new to the show, everybody, if you haven't listened to our previous episodes, uh, our Bond film reviews, Cubby's Corner is that uh, legendary part of our show where uh, Josh goes into great detail about the production of each of the films. Now, this time around, this time around, we've got a little caveat to introduce Cubby's Corner because we're very well aware of several good books on the making of No Time to Die, one of which, uh, the Tashin James Bond book, has uh, been updated with the chapters on No Time to Die, and there's another uh, making of just the No Time to Die. And of course, perhaps no Bond film in previous years has been as reported upon as No Time to Die, product of the uh, of the COVID delays and also product of its own production delays and its um, its development. So Josh decided that it would be useful 
seeing as so much information is out there to shrink our production notes a little bit this time. So many of you will know the Bond 25 timeline that delays the production. It's been taking air alongside us for so long that uh, we agreed with Josh that it would make a little bit of sense to kind of shrink and summarize points for us. So what's usually a 25-30 minute feature is going to be shrunk a little bit here because we know that so many of you can have access to this information elsewhere and you probably already have. But we need it in the show. It is essential to bond by numbers. So Josh, over to you. Open up Cubby's Corner, break out the WD-40 on the hinges, son, and let's get... I was just going to say WD-40 on the hinges, right on. Wow, that's good. (laughs) So, yeah. So, all right. So, Cubby's Corner, for for those who are not in the know, Cubby is a reference to Albert R. Broccoli, one of the co-founders of the Eon Productions Bond franchise, and he was known affectionately as Cubby Broccoli. So, in this segment, we discuss the ins and outs of the production of a James Bond film. And of course, today we're doing No Time to Die, directed by somewhat infamous right now, uh, Kerry Joji Fukunaga. It's the 25th Bond film with Eon Productions, and it's the final performance of Daniel Craig in that role. Bet you didn't know that. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I was going somewhere with that, but I'm just going to let that just die in time. Have we got time? I didn't think there was any time to die. <laughs> oh, boy. True, mm-hmm. true. So the budget was between $250 million and $301 million. Why the extra $1 million on that, I don't know, but it must have been for something. Photoshop. Um, yeah. What this basically means, because of how much that budget was, it had a lot of work to do, thanks to the pandemic, in recouping that budget. Oh, yeah. Spoiler, it didn't. Well, not yet, but uh, I I don't know. Amazon, I don't know if they've released their quarterly returns, but it was like 20 pounds to stream at one point. It's ridiculous. Oh, my goodness. That's a lot. Doesn't surprise me. 20 pounds? That's like $500. It might have been (laughs) $16.99 or something when it first came out. Still, that's... Just buy the the Blu-ray, man. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's all you really need to do these days. Yeah. Anyway... After being greenlit in 2016, longtime Bond screenwriters Neil Purvis and Robert Wade were hired in March 2017 to begin preliminary work on the script, as Barbara and Michael G. Wilson requested. Sam Mendes would not be returning, so several directors were considered for the project, Christopher Nolan and Denis Villeneuve among them. Now, Nolan turned it down, I think, very quickly. Um, He might have been working on something, and I don't think he wanted to get tied up into that franchise at the moment. He's always been sort of like doing independent projects on his own a lot, too. As for Villeneuve, well, he got himself committed uh, very quickly to Dune as it was greenlit soon afterwards. So he's been occupied with that for a while. Then we have, in February 2018, Danny Boyle becoming the front runner. Danny Boyle, of course, the director of Train Spotting, Slumdog Millionaire, 
Uh, he has an upcoming FX series about the Sex Pistols called Pistol. Mm. So he's a well-known English filmmaker, and he's a good he's a good choice for a Bond film. It, you know, like I can see Danny Boyle doing a good Bond film, and some of the ideas and concepts that he came up with for No Time to Die originally did stay in the original in the in the final version of the film too. After Boyle became the frontrunner, he brought on his old screenwriting partner John Hodge, who he worked with on Train Spotting and afterwards. Hodge and he wrote up a he and Hodge wrote up a draft that threw out Purvis and Wade's screenplay, but you know that duo of Boyle and Hodge soon departed uh, due to that famous vague reason that ends all film-related partnerships, and that's creative differences. <laughs> One thing of note, though, is that if several of Boyle's conceptual ideas would remain intact, including a Bond having a kid, b Bond dying. In the end. Kerry Joji Fukunaga, mostly known for his work in the first season of, as I mentioned, uh, True Detective for HBO, and um, and what was the other one too? Uh, Maniac one that had for Idris Netflix. Elba. Maniac. Oh yeah, yeah. Maniac. There was that Idris Elba film too, that was all about child soldiers. I forget the name of it now. Oh, uh, yeah, I can't remember, but I know the one you're talking about. Beasts of No Nation. That's what it was. Oh right. Anyway, so once Fukunaga came back, things started moving again, and. This is in September of 2018. So Purvis and Wade were called back and even their Casino Royale writing partner, Paul Haggis. And he produced an uncredited rewrite of the Purvis and Wade script once they were done. Sorry, buddy. I, I just like, I don't know. Purvis and Wade get a lot of credit for the shit that they do. But have they ever written a script that's actually stuck? That someone else hasn't had to come back <laughs> and do a rewrite? Has someone else? There's like, whenever there's Purvis and Wade, you can be damn sure there's 15 other writers behind them. Like tinkering stuff out like little elves in the shoemaker yeah. shop at night like what why can't the fuckers just write a decent script yeah it's not the dick maybom and um no, joanna harwood Michael or whatever G. are you saying this is like the wrecking crew where like you know the 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 band gets credit but really it's all like the session musicians that do all the work <laughs> yeah kind of like that know, alex man. kurtzman and robert orkey combo that always under jj abrams yeah, yeah they, they seem to always have that kind of additional screenwriting done after them i don't know i'm i always slight purvis and wade and it's unfair because they're obviously decent writers but perhaps within the writing room these are the guys who come up with the macro concepts the big ideas ah, and other people yeah. chisel in the brickwork and shape out the muscles of it all because it seems to me that there's always but maybe this is how a bond script is written now it goes through like filter after filter after filter but that that type yeah. of inorganic um tailoring always worries me because you wonder what a fresh straight out the writer like Mankiewicz wrote live and let die like it or not Mankiewicz with Maybaum's help created that script and that's a that's a Mankiewicz blueprint but what what the hell yeah. is a Purvis and Wade script because I've never seen one that hasn't been touched up by 15 other decorators if I was a guess I would say Purvis and Wade are probably competent writers oh, but I would say but yeah, that there's probably some corporate influence, uh, especially with the delay of the production. Uh, different ideas come up or different topics come up that they want to uh, make money off of because it'll make things more, it'll make it popular and more people will see it. So for how longer that the pre-production is delayed, the more changes you'll see to a script, right? Because mm -hmm. they'll have more opportunities to change things. Yeah, that's true. And then of yeah. course you have creative talent coming in. So you have Purvis and Wade; they're hired to do an initial storyline. Then you have Danny Boyle being hired after the other directors were 
either turned down or were dismissed. And then Boyle and Hodge coming up with an idea, then them leaving because they just weren't getting along with the production, obviously, with Broccoli or G. Wilson. We don't really know. Yeah. If anyone That's true. who's listening, yeah. is there any particular reason in detail why Hodge and Boyle departed from there? Well, that because was a, you know, yeah. they kept his original ideas of Bond being killed and then him, and then of course, have Bond having yeah. a child. The main reason is because Danny Boyle's script was set in Russia and they didn't want to go there. And now, of course, it would have been supremely timely to have Bond in Russia, but it uh, yes. they, they didn't they didn't want that. They just didn't want it. And he was really no. stuck on that idea of that sort of, uh, you know, Cold War environment and they didn't want it. So that I mean, that that's just been out recently. We probably could have talked about that in our world of Bond. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, still, it's it's, it's a, now. it works yeah. with this. Yeah. I, I am being a bit dismissive of of them, and That's who knows, you know, like maybe they have these conversations with Broccoli and Wilson, and Broccoli and Wilson say, "Right, boys, we're giving you first treatment, but you know, we're going to call in other people. So your job as writers, you'll get the top credit, but you're going to be the one who sculpts out the the the, the story, and others are going to come in with the dialogue tinkering, the fixing up." Uh, I'm just not always sure that so many cooks in the kitchen results in a script that that always hits. Uh, we can talk about that when we get to the story and the atmosphere of this. But uh, yeah. yeah, anyway, that's no, I agree. That's my two cents, buddy. Sorry about that one. I just I, I got to ask very salient two cents. Yeah. Very salient two points, Scott. Thank you for that contribution. Uh, that came out sarcastic, but it wasn't. Just wanted to clarify that. Understand. Thank you. I'll keep you on. You're not fired. <laughs> I appreciate that. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So, Haggis turned in an uncredited rewrite, as we talked about. Another one came from this guy, Scott Z. Burns, but then a final polish was created to provide additional nuances of character development and humor to the proceedings. And this was provided by British actress comedian, screenwriter, and producer Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who's known for her work in the series Fleabag and Killing Eve. Oh, yes. And she was also a droid in in Solo, A Star Wars Story. That's right. (laughs) Who was very into Lando, (laughs) apparently. (laughs) So an additional thrill to Waller-Bridge's edition is that she is the first female screenwriter to write a Bond film after Johanna Harwood's scripts for Dr. No and From Russia With Love. In an interview for The Independent in June 2019, Waller-Bridge confirmed that Bond is still relevant in this day and age, and that, quote-unquote, he needs to be true to this character, and it's the films that need to evolve, quote-unquote, and treat the women properly. Hmm. I would say already with the Craig run, they were kind of going in that direction. So was Phoebe Waller-Bridge a necessity that they needed to bring in? I don't know. It's uh, it's a question I guess we can discuss when we do the the, the story aspect of the uh, money pennies. In terms of the script, which we can see went through various changes, at one half point, the movie was a fever dream with Bond realizing he is being tortured by Blofeld. Mm, that's cool. And Safin was originally a henchman with Siberian hunting armor, which developed into the final no-mask of the film. Uh. And Purvis and Wade give strong evidence that the Paloma character, played by Anna Darmas, was an invention of Waller Bridge. Okay, cool. Okay, yeah, that's cool. And um, I'm curious to see when she was hired on. I wasn't able to find that out because I know that her and Craig worked together on Knives Out. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if Daniel was able to squeeze her in. We know No Time to Die was delayed, so I'm not quite sure whether which film was which film was produced first. Knives Out was produced in first. Yeah. Okay. Because I think what's his name. Um, 
the the director uh Ryan Johnson. Ryan Johnson. Yeah, Ryan Johnson. I think he did that right after he did The Last Jedi, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. So anyways, we all know about the kerfuffle regarding Craig's casting in this film, so I won't drag that out. We have the old gang back from Spectre with Ben Wishaw's Q, Naomi Harris as Eve Moneypenny, Rory Kinnear as Bill Tanner, and Ray Fiennes as M. Mallory. Uh, Jeffrey Wright returns as his third and final performance of Felix Leiter. Uh, rising star Rami Malek was cast as villain Safin with Lashana Lynch as the new 007. Uh, and of course, Spectre principals uh, Leah Sedu and Christoph Waltz reprising their roles as Madeline Swan and Ernst Stavro Blofeld, respectively. And of course, reigning Latin, reigning Latin beauty Anna Deramaz, she rounds out the, the cast as, as a CIA operative Paloma. So we have the screenplay completed. We have the, the cast done. Now let's go into the production. It began in 2019, uh, March uh, specifically, and it is the first Bond film to be shot with 65mm IMAX cameras. Uh, Fukunaga and his DOP, Linus Sandgren, were adamant on film over digital. Uh, This impressive filmic apparatus, it helps bring those beautiful vistas of Italy, Jamaica, Norway, the Faroe Islands, London, and of course Pinewood Studios. It just makes it look really great on the screen, and we can't deny that. Yeah, I like the view of the parking Um, lot with the catering wagon there to the side. The film really brought that Pinewood shot to life. It it definitely did. Uh, Cool thing with the Pinewood shot, though, is is I'll get into that, is it has to do with the Havana sequence. Okay. So... But first was the second unit in Nidadel, Norway, with the opening scene on the frozen lake. April 28, 2019, they were off to Port Antonio, Jamaica, where uh, Daniel Craig injured his ankle. Uh, this delayed the production a bit. Right. But this wasn't the only delay. An explosion <laughs> at the 007 soundstage of Pinewood actually injured a crew member. No one was killed, but it did happen, unfortunately. You can't have a Bond movie without someone getting hurt. Yeah, um, it seems that way, huh? Yeah. And of course, the pandemic would delay release the release of No Time to Die, but we all know that too. The what? Sorry? The uh, what? <laughs> pandemic? What, what's that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, man. I have no idea. Yeah, I don't. I haven't been outside for a while, so I have no idea. <laughs> I'm not sure what's going on out there. <laughs> yeah, I just been in my house. You know, like I just live alone, and you know, I don't, I have no idea what's going on out there, man. <laughs> okay. Makes sense now that I think about it, though. Like That's I was right. wondering why everyone's wearing something. those. Like, yeah. That's weird. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I, would, I thought maybe the pollution was really bad, like it is in Japan, and people started wearing masks all the time. Like, yeah. I don't That'd know. Or maybe, Heracl- or, maybe, or maybe Heracles has been released, and the masks are the only things that protect us. I have no idea. That's it. Um, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> that's it. It's got to be it. It's got to be it. There were, uh, in the UK in July 2019, there were several sequences filmed. Uh, London, uh, particularly Whitehall, the Senate House, and Hammersmith. And other locations, the, the, the forest scene following the big chase was in Buttersteep Forest in Windsor Great Park. And the scenes that they shot in Norway in particular, uh, that, was the, the, that was the Atlantic Ocean Road uh, where some of the car chase was. The rest of the, of, the, of the SUV chase was actually filmed in Scotland. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. The, yeah. Now, of course, the, the sequences in Italy, uh, which are, are very well known because just the dramatic presentation of it all... Uh, particularly the, the elongated pre-title sequence, uh, was um, this place called Cavita Lucana was portrayed by the streets of Matera and the Piazza San Giovanni Battista that was used for the staging of the DB5 machine gun donut set piece, which Daniel Craig did himself, by the way. The towns of Meritea and Gravina, also in the south of Italy, as well as Sapri, were also used for the train station. The famous bridge scene was shot in Gravina's Ponte Viadotto Aqueducto Madonna della Stella, 
which used to be a Roman aqueduct that was fashioned in the 16th century as a bridge. That was good, by the way. Uh, that was good pronunciation there, buddy. You rattled through that quite proficiently, if I may say. I have read a bit of Italian history, you know, Medici and, mm-hmm. and stuff like, I like that, that. So I guess I can you do it again for me? Just thank once. you. Can you just do it one more time? Ponte Viadotto Aqueducto Madonna della Stella. <laughs> Not bad. Not bad. That's pretty good. <laughs> That's pretty good. Couple of couple Thank of uh, breadsticks and a red wine, man. I'd be right there. <laughs> Definitely. Wrap some prosciutto around the the breadstick. Uh, bureau, a bureau right. Prosciutto, right? Prosciutto. Yeah, prosciutto. Around. You get yeah, and some melon. Prosciutto yep. for yeah. sure. Sorry. Uh, yeah. So coming up now towards the end of the production, September 2019, they were finished filming in Italy, and then they were out on the Faroe Islands to capture Safine's Island Fastness. The island of Kalsoy was used for this in particular. It's part of an archipelago between the Orkney Islands and Greenland, uh, which is, of course, as we discussed, is owned by Denmark. The set design of the complex was heavily inspired by Ken Adam. And if you're a Bond reader, to me, it kind of reminds me a bit of the suicide castle used by Blofeld in You Only Live Twice. Yeah. And just the idea of the poison garden kind of reminded me of that. Well, yeah. I don't know about you, Scott, but... It was picked up from that. And after our review, we'll talk about the source material links, and I'll read a little bit from chapter seven of that Bond book. Yeah, I will. Yeah, for sure. Principal photography wrapped uh, October 25th, 2019, after filming the Havana Chase set piece at Pinewood Studios. Yes, they built the entire Havana sequence was a soundstage built on in Pinewood Studios. They cool. built like city, like almost like a whole city block, including like that restaurant, a cafe where um, Bond meets Paloma. And then the additional building, this, everything was built on designs that they knew of like old Havana. So if you picture like, I don't mm-hmm. know, Godfather Part 2, where, the, where Michael Corleone mm-hmm. is in Havana, that whole sequence, uh, you can kind of, they basically... You can visualize, you know, how they recreated that. And Ana de Armas being Cuban, she approved of the production and how accurate it was. So that's pretty cool. That helps. You know, it is cool because you think of the sound sets, the great Bond sound sets, and The Spy Who Loved Me has a lot of chat, right? I mean, a lot of dedication to it because of that huge sound stage. Yeah. But realistically... The uh, thing, yeah. This, that, that is an incredible... That Cuba set piece is really neat because if you think of all the high angle movements up, it's a very vertical scene, isn't it? Like you've got yeah, balconies yes. and you've got drops and jumps, and I think that that's uh, that, that's a great set, even if it's not necessarily the biggest in Bond history. It, it's certainly fulsome, and you you get a lot of benefit from having that space, you know, interior or inside rather. Yeah, it was very immersive for me. Mm. Like, and and uh, it was just so well put together, and everything was looked so great. Everything, like how Fukunaga filmed it, how it was edited, and how just the design itself, you know, was just fantastic. So, in terms of post production, Charlie Noble headed the visual effects for the film, overseeing the usual suspects: ILM, Framestore, DNNG, and Cinesite. Uh, Elliot Graham and Tom Cross were given the editor's room to work the magic. Dan Romer, who had scored several films for Fukunaga, was commissioned to replace Thomas Newman because Mendy's bowing out, right? But again, creative differences occurred and Hans Zimmer was now available. Zimmer was hired in January 2020 along with singer Billie Eilish, who had been commissioned to perform the title song. For the Bond fan historians out there, this was the first instance where a composer for a Bond film wasn't hired until post-production. Mm-hmm. So, and you interesting. know, that's, it's, it's equally interesting that creative differences were cited because now if I'm Dan Romer, a young up and coming composer, I'm going to do what the Bond producers tell me to do. 
like with my first project. I'm not going to have creative differences. So I wonder if there was something with Fukunaga and their collaboration that may have not really worked out because he's not likely to be taking on Broccoli and Wilson with problems, concerns, otherwise, you know, like issues. He's going to go to his buddy. Fukunaga or his collaborator, right? So maybe those yeah. were the maybe those were the differences. If anybody knows anything about that, give us an email uh bondbynumbers3 at gmail.com or indeed just hit us up on Instagram or Facebook and tell us like why Dan Romer left the project and and what the nature was of those creative differences. I'd like to know myself cuz young young composer, man, you just you align yourself to a Bond film if you can, right? That sort of reminds me of Eric Seurat and how he was very kind of ambivalent with mm-hmm. the Bond, with the Bond mm-hmm. producers at the time as well, right? Because he wanted to do his own mm-hmm. thing and he didn't like being curtailed, but he finally gave in, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Not really. A little bit. He ended up yeah. with the Golden Eye well, score. That's true. But it could have been worse. <laughs> that, he's a good example, actually. And he puts me back in my cage a little bit because, I mean, artistic integrity is important. And here I am saying, if a Bond producer gives you a job, you take it. But at the same time, like... <laughs> No, if you're an artist and you believe in what your vision for something is, then you should mm-hmm. you, you want to take the walk in your own shoes. And it's maybe unfair of me to, uh, to just because I would sell out quickly. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I got no problem selling. Yeah, out but at quickly. the same time, though, Dan Romer isn't Danny Boyle, right? Danny Boyle can say, "Oh, you don't want to do this in Russia? Well, this just isn't going to work for me." Or yeah. what's his name, like Stephen Derrickson, who was commissioned to do uh, Doctor Strange, the second Doctor Strange movie, and he rejected the first film. He's a well he, he's a well known horror director. And he didn't agree at all. He wasn't happy with the Kevin Feige's MCU influence that he wanted to put into the film. So he stepped out, just like Edgar Wright stepped out from that same franchise when he, when he was going to direct Ant-Man. So at the same time, you know, if you have clout, you can say no. And people mm-hmm. like Dan Romer, they can say no as well. But is it worth risking, you know, that sort of animosity or having that reputation in their careers? I guess Eric Seurat didn't really care because, you know, he was happy with what he was doing in yeah, France, he's right? French, so. yeah, he's French. Yeah, and he's also tied to Besson. So, I mean, he knows he has, like, a, he's got us, always a, yeah. always have work available, right? He's got his bread and wine on the table. Mm-hmm. Going man. forward, the score was produced by Steve Mazzaro, not um, Hans Zimmer, and Smith's Legends' Johnny Marr provided the guitar to Monty Norman's famous Rift. As for the title song, Eilish had her usual partner, her brother, Phineas O'Connell, and he did the producing. And she's also the youngest performer to do a Bond song at 18 years old. Mm. Once again, Daniel Kleinman visualized and directed the title sequence. One rife with nods to all the Bond films. If you spotted the OHMS imagery in the sequences, then in regards to the score and music, you probably noticed the nostalgic use of Louis Armstrong. We have all the time in the world. Yep. And also you'll notice some bars of the OHMSS theme when Bond is talking to M by the river. That's basically the production of No Time to Die. Cool. Nice work. Yep. Um, Well, what do you think, guys? You want me to talk to you about how this film was received by the critics? Critics other than us, of course, who matter less, but still, we nod our caps. Yeah. Yeah, let's uh, see... I have ideas or some things that I remember, but if you can yeah. fill in the blanks. Well, I'd be happy to, guys. Um, no Time to Die, 83% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes and 88% audience approval. So this is a popular film, and the critics did like this film. So what I've done here, guys, I've just selected a, a number of uh, 
a number of sources, uh, different writers from you know social media blogs to newspaper or radio, bigger publications. And I'll just share with you bits of what they said, okay? So first one I'm going to share from is, uh, is a writer named uh, Zosha Millman, and she writes for 30 Flirty Film. And here's a couple of things she says. The surprising thing is that Bond needed a reason to die, and that the reason should be the deprivation of his partner and child. There's a world I can imagine where the fact that he could never touch them would be the way we write this little family out of the story completely, so he may still jet-set and kick ass. But no time to die, blessedly, couldn't imagine that. The film recognizes the heartbreak as a death sentence, and James Bond goes gentle into that dark night. I didn't come from a Bond family, and I'll not say that this performance is the definitive Bond, but I will say... That the more I reflect on it, Daniel Craig feels like the only person who could have shepherded this role from the highs of Casino Royale to the place it ended up. His installments were increasingly self-serious, bruising, and sometimes dull, but they did seem to be aware of the heart of the man, even if they could only sometimes sell us on the chemistry. Hmm. Another. Um, that's a good assessment. Yeah, that's another, actually well, I'm only giving quite, you bits of, bits of her review, but. Same with this one, guys. Uh, another blogger named uh, Carson Timar. He writes, It wouldn't be a stretch to say that Craig has never been better in the role. Craig is both a brooding force and a delicate creature of emotion that's hard not to empathize with. While his chemistry with returning faces remains overall strong, his chemistry with Lea Sidu especially stands out. Their desire and passion for each other feel undeniable, even in the most turbulent of moments simply how they look at each other from across a room and how their voice inflections change when the other is around creates a powerful and seductive tension that one could cut with a knife. Lashana Lynch also plays well against Craig, being able to push his buttons without ever working against the more mature role that he's bringing to the big screen. Despite her shockingly small role, Anna de Armas also stands out as impressive and leaves a memorable impact even if her sequence is rather small in the context of the feature. Sadly, to say the entire ensemble impresses would be a lie. While Billy Magnuson is luckily reduced to a more supporting role, he constantly feels out of place with his usage of charisma feeling both distracting and annoying. Rami Malek suffers from the opposite issue. Bringing the mysterious sociopath Lucifer Southing to life, Malek continues to rely on solid makeup work to overcome a lifeless performance that feels instantly forgettable. It continually surprises how Malik is able to get roles of such size and substance, as every role he has taken since Mr. Robot has suffered the same curse. Well, I guess she's not a fan of uh, Rami Malik. (laughs) Not in this film, at least. Uh, Here's one, guys, from NBC, the NBC editorial Think, uh, the writer's Noah Bertlaski. It's significant that Madeline, Nomi, and Paloma all are presented as deadly fighters. This is supposed to make them strong female characters. But since Bond is always the toughest physical fighter in any room, it just reinforces their secondary roles. Lind was largely useless in a physical confrontation, which made her all the more impressive when she repeatedly bested Bond away. There are many bad films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the DC Extended Universe, but even the worst of them has multiple main and supporting characters in whom creators and fans are supposed to be invested. The Hitman's Bodyguard is an empty-headed buddy action film, but it's got buddies. There are at least two characters who interact and who matter. Bond, though, is a child of Cold War imperialism. His motives are about that one masterful violent man who travels around the world to demonstrate the superiority of a white British guy to everyone else. For a moment there, 
The Craig Bond franchise seemed to have discovered a different formula. Find someone with as much star power as your lead and write a script where she's as much the focus as he is. Sadly, that isn't sustainable, creatively or conceptually. A Vesper Lind can pass through every 20 years or so. Nomi can get the 007 designation for part of a movie. But Bond films are films about Bond. He fills the screen. He's all there is. Craig will go, but absent a thorrowing reimagining that No Time to Die insistently dodges, someone else will step into that tux and plod on, bland and alone. So that's um, interesting Mm -hmm. comments there on the problem with empty females, as is Mm -hmm. seen, at least by this writer. Yep. Was was that a New Yorker? What was the the source of that one? That was uh, NBC editorial. So interesting. Mm. Uh, okay, guys. Someone going for woke points. Yeah, I've just got two more here. Uh, Eddie Harrison from FilmAuthority.com. No Time to Die can't really be faulted for the action scenes, which are tense, well-realized, and technically superb. But the key element of humor is missing. Phoebe Waller-Bridge was drafted in to pep the script up a bit, but sophistication is MIA, with gags that would elicit groans in the Roger Moore era. The new 007 drops down onto a dance floor, shoots an assailant, and quips, Mind if I cut in? cringe. Even the serious-minded Skyfall stooped to double-taking underground passengers for cheap laughs. But the tired one-liners here take away from the big reveal. Spoiler alert, James Bond finally gets killed. That should be a big deal for a 20th century icon. But after besting so many adversaries, to see Bond bite the bullet at the hands of a no-mark villain who cuts around in a dressing gown is a whopping anticlimax. And it's painful listening to the new and old 007 squabbling about who should have the title. They sound like toddlers in a playground. But the familiar punchline is that the uppity woman gets slapped down. Thanks, Phoebe Waller-Ridge. Anna de Armas archives achieves achieves far more for women in her memorable ten-minute turn. But alas, her character is ignored for the rest of the film. Craig has proved himself as a great Bond, and probably deserved an encore. It's just a shame that No Time to Die has no idea what the greatest hit should be, and that the actor seems bored with the role. Craig joined the franchise at a time when films were still planned one by one, and the lack of any overarching direction scuppers any sense of continuity over these five movies. Oddities, like a cameo from Gromit the Dog, or Bond mentoring the Book of Mormon, feel like something of a stretch for an outdated character whose claim to wokeness seems to be that his friends are all black. Carrie J. Fukunaga seems to have been doing the best he can with a salvage job here, and there's a nice choice of Jack London quote to finish, but no action film can ingest a full hour without any action to speak of. The final James Bond will return caption feels more like a threat than a promise, unless his producers can find a valid reason for him to do so. Hmm. Uh, can we go back in time where the word wokeness wasn't used? Mm-hmm. That, would be, that would be great. Yeah, I've more. never used it in a sentence other than me saying I just woke up. And, it, <laughs> and I'm literally just talking just, about sleep. Whether um, your political leanings or not, it just seems like it's a word that's meant to invoke certain feelings from your readers. And it's basically instant clickbait hmm. to me. And I think it's poor journalism. Yeah. Uh, did Anna de Armas, Armas's character really get forgotten? I'm pretty sure she just did exactly what she needed to do. Yeah, she was only in it for a, a so small So how was she forgotten role. if her yeah, whole job was to do what she it's did? It's more of the, the critic's perspective yeah, is that I'm he's like, probably enjoying her character. Yeah, yeah. and Or he or she was enjoying the character. No, I know. I'm just saying, like, 
I don't. I feel like describing it as being forgotten is the wrong way of describing them. I mean, whatever. Sorry. I agree with you. Okay, guys. Last ones here. Uh, Walter Chaw from Film Freak Central. Fukunaga's No Time to Die, the 25th canonical James Bond film, is the best one since Peter Hunt's On Her Majesty's Secret Service, and for many of the same reasons. One could hazard that the similarities, all vulnerable Bond chief among them, comprise the guiding principle behind this picture, with its multiple call-outs to Fleming books. On Her Majesty's Secret Service, in particular, along with its downbeat mortal sequel, The You Only Live Twice, the last Bond Fleming completed himself. In the latter, 007's boss, M, uses the same Jack London quote to eulogize the presumed dead super-spy. The proper function of a man is to live, not to exist. I shall not waste my days in trying to prolong them. I shall use my time. That this, that his screen counterpart, Ray Fiennes, uses to eulogize Bond. It ends with Bond, initially dumbstruck by grief over the death of his wife in the previous novel, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, now stricken by amnesia and about to abandon his impregnated wife, the child, a development Fleming never got to bring, them to, bring to term, but who finds her fruition in Fukunaga's film. At a late point in No Time to Die, two combatants reaching the end of their struggle agree the only reason to live is to leave a legacy. I find it touching that this film brings a small and precious note of Fleming's life, of Fleming's to life, so many years after his death. You Only Live Twice also features the return of Archfiend Blofeld, who, dressed as a samurai warrior, has grown a garden of death in a castle on a remote Japanese island to which people are drawn to kill themselves. No Time to Die updates the garden of death idea in a stunning set piece on another island where the internal Lucifer Safin, Rami Malek, had nursed an entire biome of psychotropic, mind-controlling, and otherwise deadly plants. It's a scaled-up version of the Lois Smith character's botanical nightmares in Minority Report, or even General Sternwood's perverse hothouse in Chandler's The Big Sleep. Safin's plan is to wipe out millions using a nanobot-aided virus engineered to target specific DNA markers harvested through the hijacking or the hacking of medical databases. It's the stuff of our most paranoid fantasies. A pandemic, a viral plague exacerbated by an uncontrolled and uncontrollable personal information leak, and a cure consisting of liquid technologies that have loosed themselves from any governmental control. No time to die among all the things it is, is absolutely inextricable from this moment at the end of our timeline. The film has about it the elegiac notes of a writer in Fleming who, quite ill from heart disease for the last three years of his life, must have known his time was short, and of a suicide note for a superhero who has grown weary and been made mad by the things he's seen and done in the name of God and the Queen. That person enjoyed the movie. <laughs> Walter Chaw, yeah. Last one here, guys. Yeah. My final comments here from Critics Corner. Matt Neal from an Australian source, ABC Radio. What imp what's impressive about No Time to Die is the way it weaves this typical storyline among the threads of the connections Craig's Bond has made along the way. It ups the stakes like no 007 movie before, not just in a I'm-trying-to-take-over-the-world megalomaniacal way, but in a personal way for Bond as well. It shows that Bond in a new light, making him simultaneously stronger and more vulnerable than before. Most of this comes down to the script, written by series regulars Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, along with director Fukunaga, and polished by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. But a lot of credit has to go to Craig, who delivers the highs and lows beautifully. His light touch with humor, along with his physicality and ruggedness, have made him a great Bond. But it's been his dramatic chops and emotional range that have set him apart, never more so than here. Fukunaga's cinematography is outstanding, the set pieces are brilliant, and the end is to die for. The cast regulars, such as Wisha, Harris, Fiends, and Wright, are great. 
and the returnees, Seydoux and Waltz, are also excellent. But it's Anna de Armas and Lashana Lynch that threaten to walk away with the movie, especially de Armas, who lights up a wonderful scene in Cuba. Series custodians Wilson and Barbara Broccoli have successfully closed one Bond chapter and provided a blank slate for whoever is chosen to pick up the martini glass next. But whoever does so has some huge shoes to fill. No previous Bond has ever gone out on a high like this. So there you go. As you can see, a mixture of good and bad and happy and yeah. sad. Yeah. But mostly so positive. Like movie mostly is, positive. I, yeah. I actually really like when movies do this. I find movies that are usually when they get like the first releases of when the first when the first like uh, barrage of reviews start coming out, it's very overwhelmingly positive. So and therefore you go into it with high expectations, but when then you actually watch it and it you know, it, it slightly drops a bit because it doesn't quite measure up to what people are saying about it, right? Cuz I remember like the last Jedi had was really high in the Rotten Tomatoes um ratings. And then when I went and saw the movie, I was just kind of like, mm. I don't want to use the word empty, but it was just sort of like, huh? Like, okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it wasn't as ter- as bad as the follow-up, the uh, sure. follow-up, but at the same time, like, it, it goes to show, you know, how w- when these reviews are being released and there's a, a build-up and hype for it, like, for these big tentpole movies that are, are being made constantly now, and then you get a very high reaction, but then you also get on the other end of the spectrum, people who just like, it's polarized completely. You have people who just love it immediately. And there, but there's no one in, but there's nowhere in between. It's either you love it or you hate it. I like when reviews are sort of in between where if some people didn't like it, then that means that I might like it even more. You you understand where I'm coming from? Like I find having different opinions on things, a, it creates conversation so the discourse is really good and uh, about the film. It gives you a chance to reevaluate it down the road. It gives other people to look at it from a different perspective. And this is someone who you know who loves film. I just I I really enjoy having movies like like that come out that are a bit more what's the word um, that are a bit more contentious in their critical evaluation. Well, then you'll be enjoying this one. <laughs> <laughs> and that, and that is a good setup. One thing you mentioned about uh, you only live twice the novel. Um, so when you were mentioning you only live, when you were mentioning you only live twice the novel, I was thinking of the scene in No Time to Die where Bond is choking Blofeld and he says, "Die, Blofeld, die!" And that's directly pulled yeah. from when in the in the novel you only live twice, where Bond actually strangles Blofeld to death. That is absolutely um, true. Yeah, and you know. Yeah. Obviously, there are call-outs to that novel. And I said that after we discussed it, I was going to kind of take you guys through some of that source material. But you know what? I got a better idea. Why don't I just direct listeners to the Literary Gun Barrel episode we did in uh, January of 2020, where we looked through You Only Live Twice. Yeah, and I think leave it at that. Maybe not go into it here in today's show, but instead ask anyone who's interested in learning more about these ties to No Time to Die to get over there and check out a review of the book because there's... whoa. A lot more than what we're going to pack in here. I think we had like a two, three hour episode on that book. So uh, lots to talk about and save, save us the time here yeah. today as Lo- well. Lots of uh, slicing and dicing of that particular story for sure. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, do something we haven't done in a while. Let's review a James Bond film. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs>
How do we do that? What do we do? We have a scoring system, Jeff, don't we? We do. It's called Money Pennies, which is related to obviously the character uh, Money Penny, and uh, we usually have. Well, we always have uh, the three key performance indicators that we use, and that's acting, story, and atmosphere. Uh, and this is what we use to gauge uh, our personal reviews of the films. Yeah, and each category can be awarded up to 10 money pennies for a total of 30 if the movie is shit hot. <laughs> yes, that is indeed correct. The term shit hot, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I knew you'd pick well, that Well, have you ever seen a cold shit? Thing, I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of like something that's a steaming pile. Mm, uh, that's the kind of is. the illusion that I get in my, in my oh, head I get it. Uh, yes. about that term. Yes. But I guess hot shit is also... I will retract that just, comment I'm just from, unfamiliar from the with the, Well... I'll yeah. be honest, I see a lot a lot of shit hot stuff. A lot of hot shit in d- the winter in Canada, walking oh, a dog, yeah. for sure. Yeah, man. Piles. Yep. Yeah. Every day. Well, yesterday was like 35 degrees, so... Yeah, it was still steaming. steaming. For sure. I had to knock the water bowl that we had outside at the cottage that we stayed at for Rachel's birthday, and it was entirely ice. Like, I literally had to smack it, it on the deck, and it... Wow. Yeah, there was, it was all ice. And then now the next day, the, the next day I drive home and I got a sunburn because it was 25 degrees. It, it, it was crazy. Oh my so goodness. the day before, it was minus three at eight o'clock in the morning. The next day, it was 25. And we're worried about Heracles in this story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, let, let's start, guys. Come well, on, let's go. Let's, let's start with still, story. Sure. Go for it, Josh or Jeff. You've been quiet. Let's give you the first kick at the can here, buddy. Okay. Well, see, <laughs> I thought like the the story is good. To be honest, I I think I ha- I have it listed as the the lowest rating out of the three categories of the money patties for the film. But I didn't. I, I don't mind the story. I mean, obviously, it's a complete continuation. Uh, of what's going on with Bond and, and um, Madeline Swan and all that kind of stuff, the origins and the, all that. Um, technically, I gave it a 7, um, which is passable. Um, I don't feel there's anything super remarkable about this story. There's a lot of things like, maybe, I don't know if it's just maybe the way it's done, but I just always thought with, uh, with the way Heracles is perceived and, and, and M, and I just feel like there's a lot, of, it doesn't make sense. Like, how could he... How is he still even able to hold a job at the end of the movie? Like he would be, there would be so much backlash and follow from this pun intended. It, that just doesn't make sense. And uh, I mean, the overall story I appreciate, and, and sort of you know with um, it, it sort of falling into the the Madeline Swan uh, family and Mister White and all that kind of stuff. Like I get that. It's sort of uh, revenge and uh, and all that kind of stuff. It's just I, I felt that. Overall, the story was not, I don't know, it just wasn't amazing to me. I mean, it was good. It it, it did what it needed to do, but it's nothing I would write home about. And uh, I just, it wasn't overwhelming. It wasn't underwhelming, but it was sort of like, I don't know, mediocre at best. So I gave it a pass at seven. Uh, that's okay. kind of how I feel about it. Let me ask you a question about the story, buddy. Like, did you have any moments or were there any kind of lapses for you where you were questioning how did this happen or how does that exactly occur? Like time scale yeah. problems? 
Oh, the, the pacing, yeah, I don't know. It just the pacing slow was, middle section. It was, like it is a two hour and forty minute film. Yeah, it's a, it's a very long yes. film. I forgot because when I was watching it, I paused it. I was like, oh yeah, it's almost three hours. <laughs> but uh, maybe maybe that's why I was just I just felt sort of the middle part kind of dragged, uh, or you know the middle act. But um, I mean, it, it's still a good film. But I just I definitely felt that. There were definitely definitely aspects of the story that that made it sort of lackluster and just I don't know I just found sort of it was it was underwhelming to me to be honest and especially watching like I kind of felt a little more meh about it I guess because this is the second time I watched it and I was obviously a lot more keen because I'm always like keen whenever I watch a film I'm always like okay let me get give me a day and then I'll I'll actually have my actual thoughts because I'm always like. Yeah. You know, geared up, which I mean, yeah, post film hyper, yeah, exactly. Like reaction yeah. is always sort of. I don't want to say status quo. I mean, it was an excellent. It was an excellent film. It was probably, and I still think it's probably um, my my favorite Craig Bond film. But overall, like, I just felt like the story. Well, if we're gonna go for, because I'm still talking about the story was. I would say lowest seven out of max. Yeah, the lowest oh, out of the yeah. three money. Pictures. What were your favorite bits? Like your favorite takeaway scenes from this? From the oh, film? I I love the Cuba scene. Like Anna de uh, Armas was fantastic in her small role. I really liked her. I mean, she's personable, um, and uh, you know, um, she really commanded. I like that ingenue feeling to her. Yeah, uh, you know, and I like she only had three weeks training, but she like literally kills it like just you know uh the action scenes are good i mean you know um she and, and you can tell that um pun intended she was very dis- almost disarming to to bond being like okay what's going on here like you know she's undressing me like he's just kind of like what do i what do i he's, he, he kind of had his little smirk which you don't get a lot with uh with craig mm-hmm. but it's nice that he, he you know she got a couple of hairy eyeballs from him in, in a short period of time so that's uh that's something you can definitely put on <laughs> On her CIA dossier, I, you know, I got three hairy eyeballs from Bond in like I don't know twenty four hours. That's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> Did the script uh, pop for you? Did you enjoy it? The writing? I thought the writing was pretty good. I mean, yeah, there was a couple of like um, you know one liners that were cheesy that were, could have been like uh, Roger Moorish, but but I, but I didn't mind them. I, I, I you know you know they're like eye opening or whatever or like blue is mine. Like I say okay whatever sure. Uh, <laughs> but uh, regarding the Bond Mots, I found like that re- one review that said like there's that line about may I cut in. Like, oh yeah. I don't th- I didn't think that was cringe at no. all. Like it. Not it, really. It's one of those lines that can be considered as natural as something you would naturally say yeah. in that respect, and it's more believable. Like like other Bond films to me, like Inspector. And even Quantum of Solace, for example, had some pretty cringy one-liners that, that oh, you know yeah. that were mm-hmm. Bondastic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in, in any other kind of film, though, they would be very, very cringy, especially if someone was trying to imitate the Bond franchise in that fashion. They really only work in Bond. But to me, I didn't think No Time to Die had a lot of frivolous dialogue. No. Like there was a couple of one-liners, but not no, a lot. Uh, yeah. And overall, like the dialogue in this film was actually very strong, and I think that's what made the acting um, very good in this yeah. film. Now, in terms of like narrative plotting, this overall story, there's great individual parts to this film, but the pacing to me is very off. There's scenes much longer than they should have been, or scenes that should have been cut shorter. Yep. So it's kind of inconsistent. There's also some plot holes, and I think the editing in the film 
in terms of the action sequences are really good, but in terms of the overall editing of the story, there's some inconsistencies that I think we need to talk about. Okay, well, Jeff's given um, us his score. Why don't you go on and talk to us about yours for story? Yeah. In terms of like the narrative, I found the story very convoluted, but I think that has a lot to do with the pacing of the story that kind of takes you out of it because of how long it is. I found that like the opening, the pre-title sequence was way too it long. It was very long. Uh, I got it written down here, actually. The, the pre-title oh, sequence goes, no, no, um, uh, including the song, we've got 27 minutes. Oh my god! Okay, so that must be wow. longer than the world is not enough because I think that was that that was the record for like one of the, no, the longest. I think that still sequences. has it. I think that still really still has it because yeah. this felt oh, longer. Really? <laughs> yeah, to me, the in terms of like even though it was longer, the world's not enough opening sequence is like almost the best part of that movie. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that I caught the second time that I didn't really get the first time, and I think Scott and one of my other friends were talking about this was. Safin wasn't actually going to like the the ships that were coming to the island at the end. There was this assumption before that they were coming to take them from the poison garden. Oh, yeah, but really they were just coming there to investigate why the British were there in the first place because it's disputed territory, that's a good right? Point. Yeah, and and I and that's that. the reason why there was a rush to destroy the place. The Dem wanted to destroy the place because of the Her- of the Heracles and the poison garden and whatnot. So Safin was never going to leave the island. He was going to be there the whole time. And so the whole sequence that leads up to where Bond tries to take him yeah. out and then he escapes through the trap door with Mathilde. And then, of course, Mathilde biting his hand. Yeah. I never caught that the first time, by the way. And then he, that's why he lets her go because, you know, like, whatever. I, I, I Go back to your father. Uh, like, that wasn't quite explained. And also when... So we know the whole sequence of him when Bond scales the stairwell... That was him basically taking out Safin's uh, bodyguard, essentially, to get to Safin so he could go and then get into the control room and open this, the silo doors, right? So to me in the editing, it seemed like it was a bit confusing because you weren't quite sure what Safin was doing in terms of like the spatial relationship where he was compared to where Bond was. And then why he was letting Nomi and Bond you know, rig their explosives or do what they were doing there. I mean, they knew they didn't have enough explosives to blow the place, but I don't know. I just found that whole where people, like the spatial relationships where people were in that whole sequence was somewhat muddled in the editing. Yeah. Do you agree with that? I do. Yeah. I do. I do. Yeah. I I think that you made a good point. That's a good, that's a very good point because we never, like, I mean, obviously it showed on, on cues like computer, like sort of the layout, but we didn't get a, like a clear sort of layout at, at some point. Just maybe it was just, ju- just to help with the viewers. Or maybe I was just dumb. I just missed it the first time. I don't think <laughs> that so. That could no. be it too. Well, I, mean, I mean, it's, it's very uh, possible. It, it's, it's, possible. it's like when you go to one of these big shopping malls and you get your park, you get your car left oh, on level man. three and you know, the shops are up yeah. on level five, but the food court's down on level one and you're in these stairwells that take you up and down <laughs> and the lifts are beating you and you're not sure, but somehow you get <laughs> there like, eh, and then you're like, yeah. Just eat my burger. I'll just go. I'll just go. <laughs> I do feel. I, I do hear what you're saying. I mean, that's a poor example, but yeah, I know what you mean. I, get it. I know what you mean. But even even with the elegant title sequence, I wouldn't mind it unless the other sequences weren't as stretched out. I mean, because the, the pre-title sequence has to inject, you know, the previous lore of the Craig era. They got to bring Vesper back. They got to kind of set up right. the the relationship that stands with. Uh, Bond and Madeline for the rest of the movie to lead up to the big reveal. So that's understandable. They could have still cut that sequence down, in my opinion, just to make it fit in terms of, you know, uh, adaptability and being able to, 
you know, just for the sake of, of pacing, right? I mean, it's good to linger in places, but there's a diff- there's there's lingering and then there's malingering, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> After the title sequence, the Bond in Jamaica, the whole sequence with the um, robbery of the Heracles in, in, in London and Bond in Jamaica, the meeting with Nomi, the scene with with Lighter and Felix, like we're getting into some really good stuff, yeah, leading good into stuff. Havana. Yeah. Then you have like the whole Spectre being killed off and everything. And that leads to the middle portion where, to me, where we don't meet Safin until midway. And then they reestablish this relationship with him and Madeline. I understand why they couldn't really make that shorter than they could because they had to get all that information in. But still, it just seemed a bit too long for me. And, like, do you really need to wait, like, five minutes for Blofeld to get from one end of that corridor <laughs> to the other? Like, they're just really trying hard to make him feel like Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, and absolutely. that's just not yeah, the case yeah. here. Yeah. And that, and that sequence went on way too long, yeah, in my opinion. Like, yep. you could have definitely cut some stuff out of that, you know? And you could have had that Safin meeting occur, like, way earlier in, in, in the film, too. Like, you could have... You know, you could have you could have introduced uh, Madeline a bit earlier, but the writing was following Bond's perspective, his point of view. So, mm-hmm. I, I guess how he learns things as as, as the audience does, right? So, mm-hmm. as, in terms of screenwriting, that is good screenwriting. But as, again, I still found that middle section definitely as good as Waltz was on his return in the role. It was just still like kind of a, a slow section for me, and then you have the additional. Even though the reveal was very emotionally impactful with you know with Matilda and all that sort of stuff, we were still in a very slow situation. But the tension was building pretty well, so I'll give it points for that. Leading up, of course, to um, revealing that uh, Magnuson, sorry, not Ma- that's the actor's name, yeah. uh, Logan Ash, Logan Ash, and yeah. uh, and 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 Safin were on their way to. Matilde's household, right? And right. the whole chase that evolves from there. Like, in terms of individual story pieces, like in individual scenes, it's it's very good. It's shot very well. Like, it looks fantastic. And the editing in those individual sequences are really good. But overall, the pacing is just off in this movie. And it doesn't feel like a standalone film. It's almost like Quantum of... It's almost like it's, it's the Quantum of Solace to Spectre's Casino Royale. Yeah. It's like a continuation of one long story. So you lose the effect that you're watching a movie and just enjoying the cinematic experience. And you're reminded that you're part of this big, long serial. And that can be a bit plotting for some people. And it kind of just takes away a bit of the excitement, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. despite having really good individual action sequences. Um, I did like, though, how the last half of the film, when once they introduced Mathilde, you got immediate emotional stakes in this movie. We're back to, you know, Lazenby's Bond escaping Pitt's Gloria and running into Tracy in the town below and all that stuff happens. Like, that kind of, that kind of intensity sure. was brought back to the Bond film. That was good. And I that really appreciated needed. that aspect of yeah. it. And um, that, to me, was when the movie starts firing on all cylinders for me. Everything else up to that point was really well done, but I appreciated having the emotional stakes in the last half of this film. And that, of course, leads to our sacrifice at the end of the movie. And the logic is there for it, but your mind, after watching it, going like, okay, so when I watched it a second time, I was wondering, maybe I missed something. Like, maybe he just didn't have time to close the silos, maybe because he had to close it in time, and then, you know, that's why he blew up. But he could have gotten out of there. He could have run away from where the explosions are. The whole time. island was in nuked. It was only, like, like 
one cliff and then down below on the, on the, in the lagoon yeah. that was nuked, right? Where the rest of the facility was. So to me, he could have gotten out of there and he could have like, you know, continue to do to be James Bond and have that emotional storyline where he's trying to find a cure for his family because we don't know, like maybe they could have developed a cure. Maybe there was some loophole that they're not thinking of. Right. And I think you shared this with me, Scott. And while I didn't feel as much the first time, I definitely feel it the second time here that there could have been a possibility. But I also get on a fundamental level or at least on a meta level, they needed they wanted to kill James Bond off and they wanted the Craig era to go out with the great, you know, swan song. And Madeline Swan that's, Song. <laughs> no pun intended, actually, but good one. <laughs> yeah. So to me, like while I enjoy the individual parts of the story, there were some inconsistencies here for me. Uh, the pacing was was off. And we go into, we talk about acting, I think, into Safin's motivations. But overall, even though Jeff said he was, this wasn't his favorite mark, uh, I was less generous. And I gave six money pennies out of ten to the story of No Time to Die. Okay, cool. Well, I'm a point below you. I went for five for the story. Um, but I, I do have to pull up the good I stuff. I was too generous. Well, not, no, not necessarily. But the, the good stuff, <laughs> the good stuff that I like in here, I, I like a lot. Um, I'll give you an indication. Like both of you have kind of poo-pooed the length of that opening sequence. To me, this is top five opening sequences of the entire franchise. I love this. I love every. I love the opening sequence. I love every stroke of it. But I don't mind the twenty-seven yeah. minute sequence because I like. I'm watching a separate thing here and one of the things that was criticized about specter i think has got right here we get a bit of time with bond and madeline we get some emotion yeah. that wasn't in that oh i love you i've just met you type you know criticism we got from specter here we see it teased out we get vesper coming back in the bit of gravitas i don't mind any of this stuff i like it i feel like we need it and i just i love the editing of the opening you know you've got madeline underwater in the ice as a kid which transitions to her in the water and you've got this youth to adult like i i like the way the film makes these transitional marks in the in the opening set i don't mind the honor majesty's secret service telegraphing the tragedy to come no like we know that's what it's doing i don't have a problem with the theme there as they're they're driving into matera no 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 um, I also kind of like the way the young Madeline, and I don't know the actor's name, the actress's name, I apologize for that, but I really like the way she is either directed or just has it herself, this sort of sign, you know, like where she's pouring her mom the wine and you get this feeling like this is a girl that's beaten down by neglect. And it does connect with the Madeline Swan we get in Spectre. It does connect with the Madeline we see in this film, that sort of aloofness that can only come from the experience of the adult world and you receiving it you know at distance from your parents like i get that and i really like that mm. the way those little points are directed into it um i really like safin's the, when he enters their property that no nonsense dialogue he's like my name is i your your husband killed my entire family uh bah, just kills kills her now i don't like that that's what he does but in terms of his character I like that straight-ahead villainous approach. Yeah. Whereas it almost That's felt good. like a Max Zorin moment. Whereas um, later in the film, his dialogue is meandering and he's he's cryptic and he's like, "Ooh, yeah. I'm on stage, but I'm actually uh, under the influence of some some weird ropey drug that causes me to be a mystic." Like I don't. That's fucking boring. The way he enters that room when Madeline's a young kid, I like that 
way he was written. Mm -hmm. But then yeah. he, he then he's become something different, like a fortune teller or something. I don't know what it is. Um, in that in that Matera hotel room, though, like there's so many nice things, like the Victrola, you know, the shot of the bed, oh, yeah. the, the patio, right, all yeah. of that stuff. I love all that stuff. And I, I mean, we've, we've said this on the show before, guys. Like, I like the Bond cars. We all love the Bond cars. I like the DB5, but I'm not crazy about the DB5. People who love the DB5, they must just love this <laughs> because it's really, it's, really it's nice. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And actually, it makes me think of the end of the film when, when she's driving the oh, baggage. Yeah. That's because right. yeah. if, if we just had that tunnel shot a little bit closer to the grill, a little bit closer to the front of the car before that pull away, you know, I think we would have had a fan service moment that would have equaled some of what we had at the beginning, but we didn't get that. Mm -hmm. um, you notice that when they're stuck in the square, just before that donut, you know, Gatlin gun thing, the bells are ringing. Now, obviously, there's a it's a yeah. religious day festival. It's a feast a feast day of something. But do you think Spectre arranged yeah, for those bells so that we've got the that. muffling of gunshot? They're threatening like uh, cow, like sheep herders. To, to release the well, sheep, yeah. like that's how much influence yeah. Spectre has in that town. Well, I figured right? Spectre was like, here's our, uh, our our alarm system in a very uh, low tech town. That's yeah, that's right. Because if if they if they can if they if they have you know the sheep herder kid on payroll, they're gonna have the person who's in charge of the bells. Mm -hmm. Let's be honest. Yeah. I do appreciate how too is like again as I mentioned the. Waltz to me was, uh, well, I guess we'll talk about the acting, but Waltz to me as Blofeld was much more, uh, I don't know, he was more impactful for me in this film than he was in, in Spectre. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah. you know, because the way that he reveals in that scene later on that Madeline would lead him back to Vesper and then he had the bomb planted there if he ever came back to forgive her. Like, wow, that is clever. That is malevolent mm -hmm. hatred mm -hmm. of somebody. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, it totally is, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and then, of course, after that explosion and Bond starting to suspect this uh, this betrayal, I absolutely, I think it's probably one of his finest moments in the entire film, Craig's acting when he's sitting in the car and Cyclops is just, you know, pummeling the yeah. car, breaking down those bulletproof glass yeah. those, yeah, those yeah, windows. Yeah. That was good. I love the way he's just chewing over his thoughts because she's screaming, yep. James, do something. And he's like, okay. He's just, he's, he's like, just he's like, why fucking in. bother? Am I really going to do it? Who cares if I die right now? But then he's like, yeah. okay, I'll do something. And he decides to. But if you watch that scene again, I watched it a couple times. Craig's acting is on fucking point, man. He is so good in oh, that yeah. scene. because see him just, yeah. yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's it. I mean, I, that, that's it. Yeah. It's just really, really good. I, it's I like true, that. though, because you can see him going in his mind like, okay, it's like, I'm going to just, yeah. I, he's like thinking over like options and just sort of just realizing what is going on. And he's like, well, I got a little bit of time. I got bulletproof windows. I don't have a lot of time, but mm -hmm. I got to make sure whatever I decide to do here is 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 what I need to do. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And, and am uh, I gonna yeah, it was cool. You? Am I going to drag it yeah, out a bit exactly. more? Uh, exactly. Um, anyway, then we then we get into um, th then we get into the the title song and all that, and I like it. I like the Doctor No Dots. I like the things Josh. I remember on our reaction show, you were talking about the Greek myths and all that stuff, which come into it. I really like all the way Heracles. Yeah, all and, that stuff yeah, plays into it, and the trident, yeah. and even at the you know we got that the 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 guns, the gun firing double guns. I really like Clyman's yeah. images yeah. there. Yeah, That's I like cool. that with the DNA. Clyman's yeah. great, yeah. and that kaleidoscopic effect, which brings us to London. That's just awesome as well. Uh, yeah. Like that cut into the film. That was good. 
But when <laughs> when they're infiltrating the MI6 lab at the start, I got vibes of like the rebel blockade scene from Star Wars. You know, like with the door oh, blasting yeah. and the long corridor and, and kind of like that long that fisheye lens. It just captures kind yeah. of what's moving at it slowly. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, yeah. of course, we yeah. got the scientists in the Dr. No biohazard suits, right? I like that bit. Yeah. That was a good little callback. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I- I'm with you guys. I, I like the uh, the Cuba stuff. It is really good. I like it more yeah, it is. now that I learn how it was filmed from your production notes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, actually. The idea of I it agree. all being a- its own little community. I really like that idea of it being like a playset, <laughs> almost. Yeah. Um, yeah. There is some good dialogue in, I was in watching- the film. But... Uh, uh, this is a lot that harkens back, you know, like um, when Bond says to Felix about uh, Ash, he smiles too much. It reminds me of Caesar's line, Josh, from Julius Caesar, you know, uh, about Cassius. Uh, he thinks too much. Such men are dangerous, you know, like it's uh, such men are dangerous. It's obviously yeah. different, but it, it, it gave me that sort of gravitas, that kind of feeling, you know, um, and definitely. And yeah, and Craig does good. look like Julius Caesar, yeah. so <laughs> the, the, the story seems to have a it seems to have a theme, doesn't it, guys? Of like the young overtaking the old, but that not always being a good thing. But normally, yeah. it, but it can be a good thing. Like you've got you've got Logan, not Logan Ash, who's obviously bad, youthful. He's taking over um, what Lighter understood as government because, like he said. Um, the sea, like they must have taken the intelligence out, or seems intelligence isn't central anymore, or something like that. He oh, says, yeah, I like right? I like that line, yeah. <laughs> and that's this idea of lighters being past his best. And I'm kind of disappointed with how his character was written to trust Ash because he and Bond are very shrewd. Yeah, I, I Bond picks it up right away. This guy's not right. Yeah, so I'm, how, I'm disappointed. How could lighter not figure out? Yeah, because plot, he has to die, right? Um, yeah, that's exactly. I'm like, but then you've got Nomi, who's young, overtaking the old, and she's good at, at what she does and trustworthy. And then you've got Paloma, who's young, overtaking the old. So there's obviously this theme and built to the story of change and transition and evolution. Yes, and I, I like that. But I like the fact that not everybody does it better. Some do it well, and it, it's good mix. It's realistic, right? Like the film promotes a mixed forecast for future development, like. Not everybody who comes up is going to be shit. Like old people think, yeah. it's not like it was when I was young, but some are better and some are very effective, but not everybody is. And yeah, I just think that's that's a pretty good thing. I think Paloma should be the next. Twice for the uh, unintended, nobody does it better. Oh, yeah. Oh, I was going to say maybe Paloma could be the next Felix Slider because she's pretty cool. I would she definitely be, be okay with that. I would be that. up for that. Yep. Uh, here's a question for you though like a couple of times we see the eyeball picked up off the ground and reinserted like is that not an infection yeah. risk like I know I'm I, is it like some oh, hell to yeah. me oh for Josh I was yeah. texting to Jeff about this when we were watching we were kind of watching the movie around the same time mm-hmm. and I was texting Jeff uh, and I said Purvis and Wade uh, in, and uh, maybe Boyle or Phoebe Waller Bridge even I don't know but they're in the writers room together we could have think of a henchman to use yeah. for this movie yeah I know. How about a guy with a webcam in his eye? That's cool, right? <laughs> yeah. I guess so. Yeah, sure. Let's do it. <laughs> I, like, I don't know. Like, I have nothing wrong with that guy's performance. I think what he was given, he did a really good job. Uh, just want to, we'll talk about him in the get in the acting because yeah, I yeah. think his, he does yeah. deserve a mention. Yeah. Dali Ben Salah. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think he did his best to be like a mercenary mm-hmm. with sure. the role that he was given, and he was menacing. But that eye thing was just sort of like 
Who Framed Roger Rabbit? To me, it was just designed just for that one-liner in the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I blew his mind. Like that's that to me. I think what well, his whole character was yeah. designed for his, for, for that, that purpose. Like that was his life destiny to be a James Bond <laughs> yeah. one-liner. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, right. Moving on. Sorry, uh, I realize I'm not giving you straight straight-ahead <laughs> comments here, but uh, we're just we're just me. That's all right. No problem. Yeah. Um, I like how much this film is written in Mallory's office. Um, the Scooby gang are the Scooby gang, but I like how much is written in Mallory's office because environmentally, that's a place I think these movies should linger. And I think this film does it right. We get three or four really big scenes, key scenes in the office space itself. And I like that. Um, yeah, I mean, Safin's character... Is great. Yeah. Uh, Safin's character gets less interesting for me as a character. And I think that acting aside, we'll get to that. I am... I think it's sad that this is the guy who ultimately kills James Bond. I think that that's really pathetic yeah. because Safin, to me, yeah. as a character written, He's lame. his revenge story is cool, but sure. the other bits of his story, I wouldn't pick up my dad's job if that's what my dad did. If I wanted to be a bad dude, I would find something far more myself because that seems like, I, I don't know, I guess he grew up in it, his all he knows. But. Wasn't he a crazy altruist though? Like. But yeah, I mean, he says at one point to Bond that we both eradicate people to make the world oh, yeah. a, a, a safer right. place or a better place or something. Like, he does see himself that way, but yeah. he also thinks yeah. that people are stupid, and as a species, all humans want is destruction, and they just look for somebody like himself every once in a while comes around to make life easy for he's them. He's kind of all over the place. He, yes, is, he is, and this is my problem with him. Like, I, Because he's crazy. Yeah, but he's crazy, but... <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. Is he crazy because he's fixated yeah. on Madeline? Is he crazy because he's fixated on his dad's revenge? Is he crazy because, like, to me, you got your revenge. It's a long way to go from there to, okay, you want a poison garden? You want to be a pharmaceutical nut job? You want to do kind of herbal medicine or apothecary shit and poison, all that stuff? Cool. But to then go from there to, hmm, Heracles. New World Order. It's not his own idea, though. He just ripped it off. And that's that, that kind of makes him uninteresting. Hugo Drax had a fucking idea. Max Zorin had an yeah. idea. He has MI6's idea and a crazy backstory of revenge. So he steals the weapon, and that's his thing. But it's not his thing. So ultimately, he's pretty empty. He's an opportunist more than he is, uh, you know, a megalomaniacal, yeah. creative, Elliot Carver-type figure. He's just like a yeah. spook. He's a spook who's got muscle yeah and he uses his muscle to get shit and his money to get shit question guys how how did Safin travel from norway to to japan in the day how did he do that yeah how did bond do it too? to england to england oh yeah oh yeah from norway yeah to when he there, abducts yeah. them like, when he abducts he... them and he yeah. gets there. how does that happen i mean yeah, I, I don't that's see the thing that, i but... couldn't figure out even the first time i watched him like i don't understand how everyone's able yeah. to get to this i know Anyways, it's... what was that? Uh, anyway, yeah, he must have had uh, that, that the joke on Game of Thrones, like in the later seasons. Maybe he had little fingers teleporter oh, or something. Yes. I don't know. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> well, we're getting there, and in fact, we've reached that point now. Okay, where where stuff goes cuckoo for me because I'm up. I'm, I'm with the film. I accept. I accept the film. <laughs> I accept the film. Up until this point, I'm at about a seven point five for the story because I'm engaged. I like it. I don't find the midsection. Mm as as poorly paced as Josh outlined for us, though I agree with what he said, I'm, I'm going with it. I'm at about a 7.5 for it, but here's where it drops to a 5 for me. It's that moment where Bond's pride fuels 
the climax of the film. And because he's the big tough guy, he's got to do it. Let me tell you, maybe, man, it's just because I got kids. I appreciate it. Um, but you know this girl is safe. You know you have a daughter to live for. And you say to her, like, here's a fucking jumper. Stay warm on the ocean. And you say to your girl, uh, hey, I got to finish this. No, you don't have to finish no you don't for once no, in you your don't. life i know you make you make lashana lynch you give her agency let us watch the film out with her yeah. finishing it let's give her yeah. the opportunity to be the fucking hero and move the series forward while craig yeah. gets a proper ending with a family a retirement yeah. in that jamaican home why yeah. do you have to finish this this disappoints me like they don't need him to it do doesn't this make sense yeah no you can argue, though, that it's a bit of a flaw of his character. He's always been kind of like rushing in the last minute doing stuff, right? To me, I think I it's know. more prob- more problematic when he, once he knows he's infected, then he doesn't. He, he could have made some decision to escape and find help somehow. Like, you know, like there could have been yeah. some loophole or something that yeah. they're not thinking of. Yeah. Or, or, this, is, yeah. this is why I'm at a five. He goes to Norway when she says, I'm going home. He hasn't seen her for five years or whatever it is. He goes to Norway and he's basically crying in her kitchen because every day that has brought him to her closer to her has been worth living and all of this stuff, all of this stuff. And at that point yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm with it. Then after the five year reunion, this is our child. She doesn't yeah. say it, but Safin says it and he knows it like yeah. it's his child. He knows that when he puts them in the raft, mm-hmm. you've got another reason to get in that raft and say, no, me, You've yeah. been an awesome pal, a great friend and colleague. You finished this job. This is your time to shine. I'm away. I'm fucking away with my family. But the plot god said this. The pl- yeah. But <laughs> yeah. to me, it's no less a goodbye from Craig if that's, if that's him going. I don't care. I would love to watch the last 25 minutes of the movie or the last 20 minutes with no me doing all that stuff. I got no problem with that. And Craig, we come back to after. Yeah. They uh, raised the glass I to her. They raised the glass to her. In the office, yeah. you know, like why not? I think that would yeah. be cool. It doesn't I make think Craig's that actually that would have been that would have been great. Would have that would have been. And I just, I just don't like that sort of that flaw. You call it a flaw in his character. Go ahead, that's cool. I just don't like that he has to go that way and that he chose to go that way to pull yeah, on the heartstrings. To me, he, you know, if the function of man, to quote the uh, Jack London, Jack, quote, London. Jack London, if yeah, the function yeah. of man is to live, Bond failed. If the function of man is to enjoy his time, Bond failed. If the function of man is to is to serve your own interests, Bond, you're a dick. You're just a dick. Like, you have an opportunity to now serve your interests as a man, as a family man, as an interesting yeah. human with dynamic... <laughs> like, I just... I don't like it. This cold, blunt, killing machine has to go up the stairs and, you know, do it all himself. And, uh, missiles hit me like Jesus Christ of Nazareth and all this shit. It's okay, because he found doo-doo uh, and yeah, he, he put found it the, in his suspenders. True. So that's, that's fine. That's true. That's okay. Anyway, look, that sunk the story for me, man. And I'm really glad that I still feel that way because I was wondering after watching the film the first time, are these reactions going to stick or am I going to warm to Bond's, dis- you know, the way he, he goes? Not haven't warmed to it. Um, like I do love the kind of climb up the stairs that whole two minute 19 second no cut single shot like I love sure. that stuff it's exciting yeah, that's good but I don't want to see him do it let me see Nomi do it let's really give Lashana Lynch an opportunity to become a star in that moment and Bond equally I, I think his character gets dimension from 
from giving it to someone else. That could be something new if you want the woke. I, I feel you, know? you on that. Oh, yeah. I agree with everything that you're yeah, saying. I, I just can't see this Barbara Broccoli mm. and Michael G. Wilson agreeing <laughs> to anything like that whatsoever. Yeah. Well, that's I can why they haven't answered my calls. <laughs> that's why they haven't exactly. come to that's, tea. Of course. I, I've automatically assumed that like they did not talk to Scott Powell about this <laughs> when I watched true. this movie. Yeah. They did not talk to Scott Douglas Powell. Exactly. Not interested. <laughs> they just they wouldn't take me up on it. So we'll try. We'll keep trying. I said your full name so they could look you up and then they could use you as a screenwriter. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Well, hey, I'm about the only one that's not credited on that film <laughs> to help clean up Curtis and Wade's script anyway right okay my my mark for story as was captain five. says you're like a dog that made a mess on the on the floor or something like that right yeah. <laughs> so i'm a five josh is a six jeff's a seven i'm a five overall because the end of the movie sucks for me uh the story at least let's move on to acting jeff back to you buddy yeah yeah so i gave the acting uh about eight and a half because i thought the acting actually was the, I, I guess out of the three money pennies i have it's the second highest uh, out of the three. Um, I thought it was actually very, very well done. I thought everyone involved in this film uh, hit their mark, uh, and even even for people that uh, like you know the the smaller roles, which had a lot of punch to them, which was obviously I'm speaking about Paloma and uh, and Anna Dermas. Um, fantastic in the in the small role that she had. Uh, she really ca- uh, captured what she needed to do. Um, again, even um, uh, Billy Magnuson, uh, he was good, even though I hated his character. I I thought he was fine. I mean, I again, I didn't like the he's he smiles too much. Like I mean, he was clearly he was the villain. He was okay as what he was, but uh, over again, just across the board, like you know, you have. Um, uh, Felix Slater. Oh my God! I keep saying Jeffrey Rush, but it's uh, Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright. So I mean, I don't know why I do that. Anyway, yes, Jeffrey uh, Wright. Uh, he's great as Felix Slater. Just like everyone um, was fantastic. I, I thought the acting was top notch, unbelievable, uh, and, I, and it's important in this film where it is basically a swan song for Bond, and we all knew it that you didn't want the acting to be slight or or cause any issues and i i think everyone was uh was very uh like on their game i i don't think there was uh too many uh i mean other okay so remy malik but i i feel like he does kind of he seems to have a similar sort of like um uh status quo for those type of characters like he I, you don't see him as being overly like uh, exuberant in any role, but I think maybe that's just mm. how what he does. Uh, I mean, he was good, but I would say, yeah, I guess he's the most underwhelming person. Uh, and I liked the scientist. What's his name? Opachenko or Opachev? He's a very good actor because he was also in, uh, there was a, a Danish film that we, I watched, uh, it was on Netflix, I believe, called The Chestnut Man or Kastanian. I remember you saying that. Yeah, he's, uh, he's very good. He was, uh, he's a very good actor. So, um, yeah, I liked him. I thought he was a, a good addition. Um, yeah. uh, he was also Leo in, uh, sorry, Jeff. Mm-hmm. He was also in uh, Chernobyl. Oh yeah, that's right. Yes, uh, very yeah. good. And the girl with the dragon tattoo. Yep, I get um, that makes sense. Yeah, but 2011 was that the Swedish film or was that the Fincher movie? It's the Fincher movie. Fincher movie. Yeah, yeah, that's the Craig film. So they've uh, met before. Yeah. So then they have. Yeah, technically, yes, you're right. Um, again, acting. I just want to say I thought everyone did a really good. 
uh, job. I mean, yeah, I, I really, obviously, Christoph Waltz, I, him as Blofeld in this, he didn't have as much screen time, but uh, I thought just as at how he's playing him now, uh, of what's happened to the character, it worked fine. Yeah. Um, Latasha Lynch as uh, the 007. I, I liked her. I mean, I know that she's trying to, like, you know, uh, put her foot in the door and be, like, you know, assertive and all that kind of stuff. I, I liked her. She had the chip on her shoulder and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I, I thought she was good. Um, but overall, yeah, I thought it was a very strong cast um, and the acting performances um, showed that. I thought it was one of the more stronger parts of this film in general. Mm-hmm. So, so you would say that the reason why it's not full marks is probably because the villain of the story is lackluster in terms of performance. Yeah, I should. And you know what? Thank you for doing that because I should have. I should have said that. So I appreciate you doing that. Uh, thank you for. Uh, no, thank you I for felt, sprinkling so, yeah, those absolutely. breadcrumbs uh, <laughs> on top of my fishbowl. <laughs> but yes, Safin was underwhelming. I mean, again, uh, nothing against Rami Malek. I know he's a good actor, obviously, um, but he didn't really do much for me. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's exactly why. It's really interesting, you know, when you think about performances, right? Uh, I'm not actually going to talk much about acting because I agree with you. I went exactly, almost exactly the same. I went for an eight for exactly the same reason. I think everybody in this film hits really well. Whether you love what they say or not, that's not necessarily the acting issue, right? The story factor. No, But I think that they're all really good. Ray Fiennes particularly is good. I notice he's put on a bit of weight. He's looking more like like the Bernard Lee kind of uh, of figure, you know? But... Mm -hmm. That edifice. But, you know, like, you think about characters like um, uh, Matthew Almarek's uh, Green from Quantum. Yeah. And Quantum. to me, as written, he was he was just what he was, and he did it well. He was a villain who wasn't a supervillain. He was just a villain. And that's what this guy feels like to me. But there, he tries to act it like a huge mystical supervillain. And he's yeah. not. He's more, yep. he's more in place... To me, like Rami Malek's character here and his acting is more like in a Marvel film. Now I haven't seen many of them, so maybe I shouldn't know what I'm talking about. But okay. he acts I, like I he's, know you're getting at. he's got magic powers. He doesn't. He's just a dude with money and resources. And like I think Almeric in Quantum, the reason that worked is because he didn't try to be something he wasn't. He wasn't trying to. Yeah. You know, he was working with all these different people and stealing from them and double crossing them, and he was like a middle top villain. And that worked for the story. Whereas here, the same sort of character, performance-wise, because he just won the Oscar, let him do what he wants with it, let him stretch his legs and everything. He needed to be better directed because he could have toned it down a bit and become more interesting. He could have leaned more into his ambiguity if he didn't try to be so stage-capturing. And to me, he was great at the beginning, like I said, when there was that straight-ahead sure. focus to what yeah, he was saying, that what was he was great. doing. But then he then he starts chewing his lines and stuff, and I didn't care much. So I went an eight yeah. overall, exactly for the same reason. So I won't bore you guys or the listener with any more info on that. Well, that's fine. Okay, you can comment on other points that we make too, of course. Sure, but, yeah, of course. Uh, regarding Safin, I actually found this this first scene when we meet him um, without the mask and everything in um, in Madeline's office. I actually thought that was his best scene in the movie. Okay, yeah. Well, that and it actually kind of set right. things up to be really interesting. Even his presence afterwards, like we know he's behind what happened to Blofeld. We know him and Ash are coming for them at the house. Like up until we meet him at the Poison Garden, I found actually this was going somewhere really kind of interesting, right? There was an enigma about him. But then once it was all revealed and he's just like this low-key, 
performance for an a character that is over the top but is not a fun kind Damage of over goods. the top yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is just sort of like so underwhelming yeah. once everything is all revealed yeah. you know yeah. and his plans and stuff like that right like and it just didn't have anywhere to go it, to me like maybe that's why that scene should have with Madeline in the office should have happened way earlier and there should have been more kind of sequences involved and maybe not have Cyclops as his proxy but have Safin doing his own work like in that scene, Havana, for example, like have him actually go yeah. out and do his own work instead of having Cyclops do his work for him. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that Craig was at the top of his game, despite, you know, being in this franchise for five years. I think he gave one of his best performances since probably Skyfall and before that Casino Royale in this film. Craig's character believed the emotional stakes, like the actor was conveying that, despite you mentioning about, you know, the decision of what he makes at the end is not great in terms mm-hmm. of storytelling. It was real. It was a real downer for you in that respect. On a meta level, I accept it, but on a deep, in terms of like, if you want to show the the foul, the um, inconsistencies in the screenplay, uh, I agree with Scott 100%, and on an emotional level too. But I found Craig, like as you mentioned, the scene in the car, uh, the scene when he sees Madeline at Belmarsh, even the scene with Blofeld was really well done. And then afterwards, like the very kind of way he was, the awkward kind of dynamic he was setting up with Matilde, like cooking like i found it all very naturalistic and believable and then like cheese like apple slices and cheese is something that bond would feed a kid you know what i mean like mm-hmm, i can you know mm-hmm. him just giving them like giving the kid caviar or something like that just seems something that james bond would do um so yeah craig was fantastic i thought leia sado was great i still don't get their chemistry i just don't feel it but on her own leia sado did a fantastic job like, there was substance to her character. You feel the emotional conflict as her as a mother. The lack of chemistry is there. But to me, the writing was good in this respect because it made me believe the relationship more uh, as opposed to the last film. And you you, you mentioned that, Scott. Uh, we talked about Safin. We pretty much did all we could with him. Fiends, Jeffrey Wright, uh, everyone else in this movie, including uh, the actor that played Cyclops, uh, Deli Bensala, uh, we're going to talk about Anna Duramas. She was plucky, uh, but she was also really fun. Uh, but she was also good at what she does. Like she was kind of believable in that fashion. Um, yeah. Billy Magnuson is Logan Ash. He was again like they never built him up well enough, and I can't understand why Lighter didn't see that guy coming at all. <laughs> it's a I bit just, weird. Mm. That was a bit weird. Jeffrey Wright was great, of course. Uh, even of course. Christoph White had a better comeback, and I give and even Wishaw. Christoph small, White or Jimmy Christoph. Christoph Waltz story. Waltz. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I, I, I know where you're going with that. Yeah. <laughs> so just so just to conclude, the uh, supporting cast as well in this regard: uh, Ray Fiennes, Jeffrey Wright, Ben Wishaw, Naomi Harris, Luciana Lynch. Uh, really, everyone just does some does great supporting work in this story. So their acting is always good there. Also, points for Rory Kinnear uh, for David Denchik as w- even though he was kind of annoying. I think that was the intention. And I like the idea of how kind of he was kind of a nerdy, dorky scientist type, but there was like a malevolence to oh, him, yeah. like uh, a passion to him that was made him even a bit more scarier than uh, Safin, actually. And it's funny that he's the one that gets the titular line, too, when Nomi pushes him into the, uh, into the poison, right? <laughs> well, he doesn't get it. He gets it. I mean, yeah, he receives it. He receives yeah, it's it. It's directed to him. So 
I give the acting nine out of ten for me. That was that was one of the highest marks th- that I gave. Oh, well, okay, cool. Well, guys, let's move on to atmosphere and finish up. Uh, Jeff, back to you. Uh, so, atmosphere was actually the highest. Uh, that I technically rated all three of the money pennies. I gave it a nine uh, because I, I thought overall, I again, it, very strong. I mean, I think it's important because if this was and is Bond's swan song per, uh, performance, they really needed to get the atmosphere and everything that encompasses that, uh, the gravitas, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I think the atmosphere, it, it, it is important to have that. And I think it does show that. Like, again, like all the, the locations were expertly shot uh it was well edited um and just uh, i just feel like with the atmosphere of this film like it really it really brings you into each location um you just really felt involved in all of those like everything was very immersive um it was all very well shot i I loved all the locations i loved I thought all the action scenes were very well done. I mean, this is, I guess, maybe more like editing, but again, I felt with the atmosphere, all these different locations, I thought it was very, very well done. And it, it, uh, to me, I was, um, I thought that was one of the most, um, important aspects of the film. And I thought it was one of the strongest parts of the film was the atmosphere as well. I think one of the strong parts of a Bond score or any movie score... Oh, and the score. I didn't uh, mention sorry, the score. Sorry. sorry, no, you're right. I didn't even uh, mention the score. That was dumb of me not to mention that. I thought it was, don't it was worry. very good. <laughs> I'm sure you'll mention it yeah. for both of us. Well, I tripped over my own line there. What I meant to say is I think one of the most important parts of the atmosphere of a Bond film or any film in, in general, setting the mood and, and overall feeling to the proceedings is this is the soundtrack, is, right. the, is the score. I, I like the nostalgic use of like the OHMSS theme by John Barry. Yes. Uh, the all the time in the world, like the nostalgia was uh, was was good in, in in terms of the score. I even sort of like that little motif when that's kind of used, like that dun 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 dun. dun. It's like using the Bond theme, but it's very Zimmer sounding as well. Yeah, I, I did enjoy that particular part of the score, but it, I kind of brought my mark down. I don't know if you did, Jeff. Because I found the score was a, was a little underwhelming compared to all other aspects mm-hmm. that work so well in establishing the atmosphere for this movie. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, I think there were uh, portions of, of, of previous Bond scores. Like, obviously, there's a lot of uh, Honored Majesty's Secret Service here that has been used. Um, and obviously, um, with using the Louis Armstrong song at the very end and uh, little things like that, the atmosphere. Like, even we had uh, mentioned, I think I mentioned this before, if not, it was maybe before we started recording, was uh, there was sort of like the, basically the uh, the gun barrel scene when he's in the um, in the bunker there uh, and he shoots a guy down the hallway and he, he just turns and shoots with the... Uh, with the pistol and it has you know the the gun barrel theme the the berry theme there and i thought that was uh that was cool so that was pretty cool that was good that yeah. was that was a good a good segment overall like we have to agree the cinematography uh, in, in in this was excellent like uh, yeah, Ukanaga and uh and his and sandrin like they did a great job framing every sequence and capturing the action very well the stunt team worked excellently for the sequences matura in um, mm. the sequence oh, in Norway, which cool. was filmed in Scotland, yeah. the SUV chase. Yeah, that was awesome. All that was done well. The island in the the Faroe Islands was shot beautifully. That Ken Adams complex was, was yeah. inspired yeah. complex the inspired was so complex. Good. It's very good. It has this almost brutalist feel to it, so it looks more modern than a usual Ken Adams one. But it was really 
it was really well rendered and, and put together. And the lighting was really good too. The sequence when they showed like the poison garden where it shows like all those lights dangling down. Oh, and yeah. it reminded me a little bit of like the Lipperis super tanker set because uh, it goes all the way back, right? So oh, I was yeah. like, are, as I realized yeah. that's probably the 007 soundstage. So it's probably, you, you can see where it's probably concocted from, from those original That's not a bad, yeah. Bases. I thought that one burnt down, didn't it? For the for the sets, then it looks really good. Oh yeah, that's right. That's I right. gotta but say they build that up a new soundstage oh, okay. afterwards. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. I that. But anyways, it just reminded me of that in terms yeah, of, of yeah. the yeah, lighting. Right. It reminded me of that big super in- internal interior of the uh, super tanker. Now here's a question though: Is a Bond score as good as its song? Because I did like how Zimmer did use flourishes of the theme song in the score, particularly towards Bond and Madeline. I really enjoyed that. I love having that done in a Bond score where they actually use a theme, unlike <clears throat> Thomas Newman, who never did that. Um, well, yeah, but come on, that's a little unfair too, because as we've, as we said and outlined in all of our uh, Newman era Bond film reviews, he only did the Mendes films. And unfortunately he received the title song very late into the production of his score. And there was a, you know, this, this whole idea of like, he, he wasn't necessarily active in doing that. If he had his druthers, if he had his, you know, if he had his preferences met, he might, I mean, he would want the score to use the song, but what can you do when Adele is recording Skyfall in secret <laughs> and even the producers of the film don't give it to the fucking composer until like he could work it into one cue in the score, like right at the end before the score's got to be <laughs> like Thomas Newman was on the receiving end of some shit stick when it came to getting the actual title song because the title song had nothing to do with him. So those days yeah. of Barry and even Arnold, you know, was didn't always have control over that feature. So I think okay. as much as I don't like Thomas Newman's music for those films, I think it is a little tough to say that he didn't have time to work in that because he didn't have time to work it in. But Zimmer had I, I plenty of time. I, I feel this thing. I, I jumped on him too too much. And uh, I, 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 I <laughs> yeah, I feel that I feel the lash of that of that well-deserved. Good thing you didn't um, say anything about Rita Cool. Thank you for that. And I'm just going to say, as I left, I found his score is underwhelming. I will say that. But at the same time, I understand there's reasons for that, and I respect that. And I all, I love Thomas Newman's work. Road to Perdition is one of yeah, my yeah. favorite yeah, scores. I actually really enjoyed his score uh, to 1917, which I saw mm-hmm. recently. Uh, to me, he's one of those atmospheric yeah. composers where it's it's not like that. He's not he's not a neoclassical type, which is what I I like. Or I kind of gravitate more towards someone more. Um, expressionist like Zimmer, for example. But, you know, I'll give Thomas Newman his kudos for the Bond franchise. He did what he could with what he was given. So we'll accept that. But I I recall you one time, Scott, mentioning you weren't a fan of the title song. No, I'm not. Well, I'm lukewarm about it. I I think we said on the uh, last episode of Bond by Numbers, it's no all-time high. But uh, in the last... The last episode of our show, guys, we were talking about the Oscar win. And I think, yeah, whatever. It's great for the franchise, but it's... I mean, come on. Are you going to tell me that that's the best film song written that year? Come on. Just so I mean, lazy the maybe, Academy Awards maybe. is. Yeah, like, I like it. And I think they had to recognize Craig Leiden somehow. They could have given a different technical <laughs> yeah. award more appreciation. But yeah. <laughs> I don't dislike the song. It's middling for me in terms of the yeah. ranking of 25, or if we consider sure. the 67 Casino Royale 26. Uh, it's middling for me. I don't dislike it. Um, I like. I think it has a lot more thematic value 
than we get in the film. But that's just me. Anyway, what what was your mark for atmosphere, buddy? Sorry, just I didn't get it. Yeah, so I brought it down a peg because of the of of the uh, score, and you have like Johnny Marr from the Smiths, and you get to hear like him doing the Bond guitar like maybe once or once twice. Or twice. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. take advantage right. of that if, <laughs> right. if you ask me. You know? Yeah. Right. And, uh, t- so sometimes I, I think Zimmer can kind of go off in a direction where you don't expect him to when you expect to have more bomb. I think he wanted a more bombast for, for a Zimmer score, especially for a Bond film. And he okay. kind of went low key, in my opinion. So I go for eight and a half out of 10 money pennies for the atmosphere overall, because I really dug the cinematography, the production design. We talked about Havana. We talked about how the car chases were done so excellently. All the stomach they put into the film, all of the nostalgia, the devices they put into the film and just... Just like the usual Bond elements, they all work together so well. So I think eight and a half out of ten is a good mark for atmosphere. All right. Well, I'm I'm a little bit lower than you guys on the atmosphere. Um, I agree with everything you're saying about the way it's filmed. I can't fault it technically. You know, I, th- I think it's great. The color scheme. The, you know, the last couple of films have had distinct color schemes, haven't yep. they? Yeah, like they have, you yeah. think about the blues of Skyfall. We got the browns of Spectre, and here yeah, we've got these exactly. kind of mottled browns greens and grays and. <laughs> And and there's also browns in here too, yeah, you know, like the yellowy gold. Oh yeah, in Italy. So this, this, yeah. yeah, like I like I like the composition of it all, and I mean it, it's pretty to look at, and the, I'm never bored. The sets are pretty. Uh, I like I said I like being in M's office. I like having more of that. The externals in London are nice as well. It's very nice to watch. I'm never bored watching it. Um, the score brings it down for me because. Nah, I mean, apart from what Josh cited, that there's nothing. There's nothing in it that I'm remembering. There's nothing in it that's beautiful. There's no lyric. There's no hum. There's no nothing. It's serviceable. Now, you could say that the last couple of cues of him, you know, there's growth and there's that typical Zimmer movement, you know, that escalation. Yeah. In yeah, the bunker. you can say that. You in can the totally say complex, that. Whatever. In the bunker. That's when I was like, oh, Climb yeah. Climbing the steps. <laughs> exactly. Because there was the part, I think it was when dun, someone, dun, 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 someone dun, dun, had fallen dun, dun, into dun, dun, the, you know, the the fancy uh, acid water. And uh, and <laughs> then I heard like a, I'm like, oh, yeah, right, Zimmer. And then I was like, because, I, I mean, yeah. I, I knew he did, but I yeah. was just not really paying attention. And I was like, oh, right, Zimmer. Because <laughs> that's what I mean. It was kind but of Josh- underwhelming. <laughs> Underwhelming. That's exactly the word I'm using too. Mm-hmm. Um, we the moments of the score we've talked about are the John Barry moments that were pinched and used, uh, you know. And I'm very happy with them. And they were John Barry, yeah, literally like recorded. Yeah, it in. was yeah. Exactly. like Mizarro literally just yeah. brought in yeah. John Barry pieces. That's what yeah, he did. That's what it was. He, he it did wasn't a good like, job. I mean, sure. Zimmer, yeah. Zimmer scored the film appropriately, yeah. and it's for it's him fine. and the way he does it. But um, I'm not. I'm not a I'm massive not he come in fan too. Of, of his recent stuff. How can you yeah. come in late when a film's when a film? Yeah, but you've got fucking months to write a score. Like how many? How many? I think he released like what? Like I know he did a huge. I know he was working on Dune around the same time too. I don't know. That took up a lot of his efforts. Maybe, probably. But come on. I mean, this is a guy who puts out like six. He's got you know. He might work on two films a year, and he's got his little minions yeah. doing five other ones. Like these are professional musicians. This film was delayed a long time after he was brought onto it. Um, yeah, I, I'm not going to give him. I'm not going to give a professional musician with the skills of Hans Zimmer this sort of get out of jail free card because Burn. well, <laughs> nah, I don't give no whatever. You're not I just didn't, I just didn't love the score. That's fine. Like yeah, I love I love Crimson Tide. Sure, of I course. I love um, 
What's the other Gladiator. one he did? The Rock. You know, I love Gladiator. Gladiator. Yeah, That's man. all great scores. Yeah, He's a fantastic musician. Absolutely. But this score yeah. just didn't do it for me. Sure. You know? Yeah. John Barry coming in with three weeks to do The Man with the Golden Gun. That's not a lot of time. He had like five score. months. <laughs> Absolutely. So that tells you something. But <laughs> yeah. hey, whatever. That's neither here nor there, guys. Um, the atmosphere of the film, it's, it's a good, nice movie to watch. I went 7.5. Um, I don't usually go lower than that. That's a good pass mark for me, certainly. So, guys, that brings our totals then. Jeff, you're at a 24.5. Josh, you're at a 23.5. And I'm at a 20.5. And I think that's probably reflective of what we've said here today. No surprises. I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No surprises. Yeah, yeah I think so. Well, the, well, then let's ask then the burning question. Because our lovely Granny O, who did all of these films oh. with us up until her passing last year, she would have also had an opinion uh, recorded for this program where she's still with us. What do you think, Josh? Jeff, what would Granny O make of No Time to Die? She would have liked the Jamaica Well, I think scenes. Granny O... <laughs> she would have, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I think Granny O would have liked this movie. I think she would have liked the coupling at the end and Bond having a kid. I think she would have probably really in- uh, liked that. I think mm-hmm. I think she would have appreciated that. What she would think about his death, I don't know. Like, my grandmother was not averse to sad endings or tragic endings. She wasn't at all, as long as it, you know, it earned it in the end. She might have agreements with you if you brought it up, you know, to her, Scott, about, you know, your issues with the ending and my my, my issues with it, too. And I think she she might have fallen upon that. But it's hard to say, like, do you think... She would have accepted Bond's sacrifice, and she would have saw that as a happy ending, like a good a, a goodbye to to Daniel Craig. Like, would she have thought that was beautiful? And then playing the Louis Armstrong at the end of the movie, I just know my grandmother, and I can just see her jive into that. I can see her accepting that, and I, I think she would enjoy that movie probably out of all the Craig movies, in my personal opinion. I think she would be okay with this. I think she would have liked the movie. I don't know that she would have loved the ending, but she would have accepted it more than I did. Yep. Um, because <laughs> yeah. she also doesn't care as much. <laughs> so she's, you know, it's like good entertainment for her. And put my chicken strips. Yeah, in we definitely got whatever, radio you know? in her post Bond phase, eh? Like I don't know yeah. if we had, if we had had this podcast back when she had Sean Connery like on her wall like uh, yeah. way back in the day yeah I think yeah. we would have probably had a different response from her but I think you know towards the I end of know. her life and yeah she loved I, Daniel Craig you know, she really liked Daniel Craig's films like she did yeah, like Craig as Bond so I think she would have enjoyed this film I think she would have liked the family angle more and I think she would have been right with it up until. Uh, the end. I mean, I'm tempted to say that she would have sided with me, but I, d- I don't think she would have. I think she would have found problems in Safin because she wasn't liking the, some of these more sophisticated uh, criminal plots. Like she, she wasn't mm. into all the techie stuff. She liked, okay, Goldfinger. He was a baddie. Like he, she liked that simplicity sure. of he wants to blow yeah. up this or he wants to, you know, kill all of the that, you know. But this is a more complicated, altruistic, as you said, kind of thing. And I don't think she would have been into the philosophy of that. So I think she would have had problems with Safin, found him a bit weird, but like everything else. And yeah, yeah, I think she would have been more like you guys with the ending than me. That's what I think. I think that's a, that's a fair I think that is also yeah, a fair assessment. Yeah. And she would have been upset that the song, she wouldn't have cared about the song. No. Nah, she wouldn't have nope. cared for it. I know that. Oh, yeah. oh, I definitely, uh, yeah. Billie Eilish is not a generational sort of sound. <laughs> well, there's just, there's, right the, there's, it's just such a soft, 
song. Yeah. It's like Granny O was like, "What was that? Was that a, was that a song? Is that a Bond song? Like, what is that? It's like, <laughs> is, it a, is it a dirge? Like, what exactly was yeah. that? <laughs> Where's the hanging lant or the swinging lantern? Like, what? Where I don't see yeah. the death. Where are the girls? Like, where are the girls dancing? <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, right. Oh well. Good right, work, guys. Great. That was good fun. Good fun getting uh, getting that out. So, anything to say before we sign off and? Uh, Remind our listeners that Bond by Numbers will be back. No, as Scott said, uh, check out our old, our review on uh, Through the Literary Gun Barrel. In regards to You Only Live Twice, if you want to see our feelings about that book and compare it to, you know, the aesthetic that was shown in No Time to Die that, in our opinions, definitely deliberately referenced that particular novel. And, yeah, we got another What If is on the way, some more non-Bond film reviews, and, of course, we're going to be checking out... Uh, Double O Origins with our historical perspective. Uh, Jeff's going to bring up uh, the famous Operation Mincemeat. Yeah. Well, take care, everybody, and we'll uh, we'll get you back here soon. 